When it comes to hard work, there's one important rule. Pick the right tool for the right job. That's why Chevy offers a family of Silverado pickup trucks designed just for the job. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and put a Silverado in your toolbox. All right, welcome in, everybody, and happy Friday to all of you. It's Dave Plyer here on 720 WGN. Tonight from 6 to 10, New Year's, just after midnight, I'll be sharing with you my favorite conversations of the year, which we've done every year for the past decade. First up, my teenage crush back in the 70s, from one day at a time to her marriage to Eddie Van Halen and TV series Touched by an Angel Hot in Cleveland and Valerie's Home Cooking, here is Valerie Bertinelli. And to talk about her new book, Enough Already Learning to Love the Way I Am Today, is Valerie Bertinelli. Hi, Valerie. Hello. Hello to you. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Um, You know, I I will tell you, this book uh, was most likely a pretty cathartic journey to write. You say this book is about letting go of certain behaviors that no longer serves me, recognizing it never did, and trying to find new ways of channeling my thoughts and emotions, it's really about letting go and loving who you are right now, isn't it? It is, and I'm hoping that that message will embed itself in everybody um, about themselves, that it really is about letting go and just accepting yourself for who you are, flaws and all, you are perfect just the way you are. Um, I, I just think if more of us would just accept um, the good and the bad and the ugly, that we could move on and be more productive as human beings in this world. No question. No question. And, and by the way, right after the forward, you write in so many words before you start reading, go make this snack. And, and you throw out a recipe, a hot spinach and crab dip, and it made me laugh. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll go make a snack before I get started. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's a big, it's a big yeah, part of what you're I doing. Just, I started off loving food, and I didn't, I'm not going to not love food any longer just because I don't like the way I have used or abused it in the past. It's still um, love for me, and I wanted to share some recipes that um, kind of relate to different stories in the book. Yeah, but what goes better than con- with conversation is a little food, right? Right, of course. Yeah. You open uh, about talking about your first husband, Eddie Van Halen, stopping by the house to talk to you and actually having some of that dip. And you reflected on that first time you and Ed met and a little about how Wolfie got into music himself. But you talk about the relationship that seemed less complicated after you divorced, yet in that moment, you wanted to hug him, and when you greeted him, but you really didn't know how. You'd known that Ed's second marriage wasn't going well, neither was, was yours, but you didn't want to send the wrong message, yet it was something you regretted not doing. Do you find that those types of moments happen a lot, where you second-guess yourself in those situations? Yes! Yeah. Oh, yes, and I'm here to tell you and help anybody through it that, you know, treat people the way you're... N- the way you want to be treated, of course, but also as if you're never going to see them again. We don't know when our last moment is going to be with someone. So I know that I've never regretted um, hugging someone or telling someone I love them. That's, that's what could be wrong with that. And I know that I have regretted if I haven't, if I haven't done that, if I haven't let someone know how I really feel about them. So uh, I would encourage anybody to really treat people the way you want to be treated and um, as if you're not going to see them again. 
I like that you say that because I know I know you're you're a hugger. So am I, and it's been hard during the pandemic to not be able to reach out and do that because it's a sincere form of of love and um, compassion for somebody when you see them. And you know when when you had invited Eddie to dinner and really wanted it to be different and and kind of let everything else go, which is not always easy. You know, this is a situation where you knew time was ticking a little bit, and that's not always the case. You said, you know, you never know when the next time you're going to see somebody, so you might as well embrace that moment as it was. But in this specific situation, you kind of knew you had to spend as much time as you could before he was gone. True. I sort of knew that, but um, I wouldn't let myself believe it. I really, truly, yeah. naively believed that Ed would get through this. Um, even when my brother was telling me, no, it's bad, and Wolfie was like, Mom, we don't know how much longer we have. I'm like, that's crazy. Your dad yeah. always gets better. Yeah. This is, this is going to be fine. I'm just, I, I really believe that. But, and then it just, when it just hit me, you know, those last few days, it was like, fuck, this yeah. is really bad, and I'm going to miss you, and I wish we had done it better. We'll do it better next time, and... Oh, it's so hard. Yeah, you know, and I know he confided in you, but you really wanted to make sure he knew you were there for him, and that was really important. Oh, very important to me, yeah, because I know that he had a lot of regrets about um, the way he had treated me or Wolfie or any of the things that he had done, what he believed was wrong. Um, I just wanted him to know that it's all okay now, that um, how much I loved him, and I knew how much he loved me. I knew... You know, all the all the stuff just didn't even matter anymore, all the, the ways we treat each other. I mean, I know that he was really angry at me for a few years after I left, and I just wanted him to know that it's, it's all good now. It, you know, that really is water under the bridge. It's not worth holding on to. But you know as well as I do, there is no marriage. There is no relationship on this planet. That's perfect. And if, and if someone lets you, leads you to believe that, there's, there's something behind it. There's just no relationship and no marriage that goes through swimmingly. No, no. And I, but I think that's just that's what we are as humans. We need to um, go through hardships so that we can get to the other side of them. We're here to learn. We're here to learn how to be more compassionate, how to be more kind, how to be more grateful. And I think you, you need to have rough times so that you know how to work through them with as much kindness as you possibly can. All right, there's more with Valerie Bertinelli after a look at your rush hour traffic and weather. Stay player on 720 WGN. We're talking to Valerie Bertinelli. Her new book is Enough Already, Learning to Love the Way I Am Today. So I grew up watching you. I mean, we're pretty close to the same age, but you were a very, I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times, very early crush in my very early years. And you were America's sweetheart, right? I mean, that's what you were always known as, but that's really a lot of pressure and big words to live up to in the public eye, isn't it? I, I'm grateful that I didn't know <laughs> yeah, how, okay. how big it was. I mean, I'm finding all this out now, which is nice, but we didn't have social media back then, so that w- right. it wasn't, I wasn't bombarded with that. I was just doing my job and doing it to the best of my ability. Um, but it's, it's really nice to find out, you know, at this age that um, I meant something to people. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Actually, through your entire career, you did. I mean, you've done so much. But you mention in the book that nothing is drearier or more unproductive 
than that well-worn path from my bed to the scale. And it, yet it's the rare day <laughs> that I can avoid that route. I mean, we all do that. And I need someone to put up a detour sign, you write. And, but that has been an ongoing story and struggle to be that perfect person, right? Right. And there is no such thing as perfection. As a human being, we can't be perfect. It's, you know, we can strive to be the, as good as we can possibly be, but there is no perfection. Otherwise, why are we here? Um, but I, I, when I finished writing the book, I stopped getting on the scale, and I haven't been on the scale since I finished. And um, surprise, surprise, my genes still fit, so I haven't, <laughs> <laughs> you know, awesome. changed that much. All I've changed yeah. is my attitude because now... I'm not looking at a number that's going to depress me for the rest of the day because the number number was couldn't ever be low enough. When it was low, I wanted it lower. And if the number was high, I was like, well, that's it. My life is over. I might as well just never go out again. People are going to judge me. Now I'm like, you know what? I can start the morning a lot better not um, having one more thing depress me. Yeah, and I know you want people to learn this stuff from this book because, I mean, it made me think about things too. Like, man, we put ourselves under so much pressure don't we? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, can, it needs to be easier than that. I mean, yes, there are challenges in life. And le- yes, there's going to be difficulties. But we need to be softer and kinder to ourselves so that we can be softer and kinder to others. It starts from within. There's no getting around it. And you talk about your journey, by the way, on the small screen. Uh, you know, 1975, cast as Barbara Cooper, the youngest of two daughters of a divorced mom on Norman Lear's latest sitcom one day at a time because he just had a massive string of hits and by the way still working and will be a hundred this July. <laughs> like talk yeah, about talk about setting the bar <laughs> I mean, yeah oh right my gosh but you you literally grew up in front of the entire country um and bonnie franklin was like a second mom to you but she told you at some point to be true to yourself and that's something is really important to embrace because it's not always easy to do that. No, and when she told me that, um, I it didn't sink in. It it took years for me, and I'm still working through that. Being true to myself, what does that mean? Who am I? I'm still trying to figure out who I am at 61. So I'm I'm grateful for everything that she taught me, but um, I just I'm so thick skulled. I just wish I'd learn lessons faster. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I get it. And by the way, I, I know you're 61. I, you know, I've, I've seen you. I've seen you in interviews in the last week or two. You don't look 61. And I know it's not all about looks, but you look fabulous. Just to let you know, you look <laughs> you. great. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Um, something I really learned from the book, too, is that, you know, everyone struggles, and I found this really poignant, of what to hang on to and what to discard from the past. And that includes a bunch of different things, habits, routines, and even material things. And I, and I found myself over the last year, especially during the pandemic, boxing up a ton of stuff to donate, just throwing out stuff that is just maybe weighing me down on some level. But you really got at some point in your life go, you know, again, not just about material things, but just about things you've hung on to, you know, mentally. Like, mm-hmm. maybe it's time to go. Yeah. And I, I know because of, you know, the loss that, I've suffered. I know many, many, many people have, too, because COVID has been so devastating for all of us. Um, I, 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 and going through my parents' things and, and what mm-hmm. they held on to and probably didn't even realize they had, 
I don't want Wolfie to go through that. I, I need to start getting rid of some stuff. Yeah. Um, I haven't, I remember when COVID first happened two years ago, um, I thought, well, this is the time I'm going to clean out my closet. I have plenty of time now. I can do this. I can clean these drawers out. I can donate a bunch of stuff. And I'm still, I don't even know what to let go of anymore. So uh, it's, and I, I don't feel like um, I'm drowning in things because I, but I, I know that I need to let things go. Yeah. And when I do, it does, it does feel better. It, it's a, it's, there's a weight that's taken off of us when we just clean the junk drawer in the kitchen, for Christ's sake. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my 20 year old made me try on a bunch of stuff in my closet that he's like, dad, you, you're, you got to get rid of stuff. I mean, really, you know, I'm trying on stuff. And he's like, and I mean, I'm trying on stuff. And he's like, do you really need those parachute pants? I mean, really, does that work for you anymore? <laughs> no. Uh, it's so true, right? We yeah. Think, or as far as I do, I'm like, well, I could fit in that again. Why? Why not just have something in my closet that I do fit in right now? Yeah. You know? Yeah. No question. But that's where the phrase enough already comes into play. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. No question. You talk about um, writing a cookbook with your mother and, and she gave you an envelope of recipes. You asked for one recipe. But, you know, most of our mothers, and this is true, and our grandmothers, you know, followed recipes to a T but never made it their own. And discovering your own journey and all this, and I'm loving your show on, on, on the Food Network, you know, you decided to take some of these classic recipes and just make it so it tastes good to you. And it's pretty metaphorical on how you need to take that advice and, and apply it to life itself. How do I take some of these things that, you know, might be good placeholders, but make it work for me? Yeah, and I think everybody could use that advice, too. Um, making it work for yourself, with, but still keeping the history of it and the intention and just make it work for you. Before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about Betty White because she was on the board of the Museum of Broadcast Communications here in Chicago, a board that I chair. So I've gotten to know her a lot over the last 15 years. I mean, I used to have to keep like a piece of paper with dirty jokes on them because I don't tell dirty jokes, but I had to, <laughs> I had to, just to keep up with her, I had to have like my little cheat sheet with me. But you, <laughs> but yeah, and you know what I'm talking about. She was amazing. She was just so amazing and so full of light and, and love and kindness and gratitude. And I just, I loved that I got to spend five years working with her. It was, it was magical. It really, really was. And I knew it at the time. I knew for sure live this right now in the moment, Valerie, because this kind of stuff doesn't happen. Just enjoy yourself and be here fully. Just your mind, your body, your heart, your soul, everything. Just be here and take it all in. Valerie Bertinelli. Her book is Enough Already, Learning to Love the Way I Am Today. Pick it up on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Uh, One Day at a Time airs weeknights on our sister station, Antenna TV, and you can catch Hot in Cleveland streaming at Paramount+. Plus. Thank you so much for sharing these stories with us today, Val, and, I mean, really great insight um, on what you've learned so far in this journey, and I'm appreciative of your honesty, and hopefully it will help guide some others uh, on their journey. Oh, thank you so much. That was my intention. Thanks, Val. Thank you. Valerie Bertinelli. News is next here on 720 WGN. All right, day player on 720 WGN. So Henry Weekler stars in the brand new season of HBO's Barry. And to talk about it all, Henry joins us tonight. Hey, Henry. Oh, my goodness. What a pleasure to chat with you. How are you? I am great. I am great. You are on the road again, aren't you? We are. And the last time I was on the road, I was in 
in your studio today. Yes. I'm in Austin, Texas. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Well, I want to start this conversation. It has been since 2019 since we've seen a new episode. And that's the last we were here, right? In Chicago. We were in studio together. Um, Absolutely. And I'm looking at the reviews for the new season. It's off the charts. Like Rotten Tomatoes, who really doesn't say anything nice about anybody, says this new season is a masterpiece. Yeah, I'm telling you it is. You know, when you're doing it, you don't think about reviews. You think about this is such complicated and funny and crazy material. And you just are there. And with me, I my really my fellow um, actor was Bill. Right. And just because he's also the writer, mm-hmm. the producer, the director, and, and the star of the show, you want to get it right. No question. No question. You know, and that's that's all you can think about. And then, oh my gosh, it comes uh, it comes to to life, and now it's going to go out in the world. And the cast we all met uh, Thursday, I think, in um, uh, last Thursday in L.A. for the premiere, and it was amazing. Yeah, I was going to say you filmed the new season last summer, I think, early fall. How cathartic it was! I'm sure to be finally back on set working with these great people that you're surrounded with. Well, you know, um, uh, March uh, uh, 2020, we're at the table. We're reading the scripts. There's a lunch for us. We're all handpicking the food. We come in the next day to read the next two scripts, and NBA had canceled their season. And so Bill and the producer looked at each other, and Alec Berg, uh, Bill's partner, and said, wait a minute, we better go home for a while. They said, we'll be back in eight weeks. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then it was like two and a half years later. I know, that's crazy. But here's the thing about you, and, I, and I, you know, I've gotten to know you personally and as an actor. You know, the character, even though you haven't really played that role for two and a half years, that character really never leaves you, does it? No, it doesn't. And you know what is the truth? I mean, just a technical thing about acting. Let's imagine that it was a play. You do the play, you rehearse the play, you, you put it up on its feet, you're doing it for an audience, and now you, you stop doing that play for two years. You come back and the play has grown in you. Yeah. And all of a yeah. sudden it comes out and it's thicker, it's better, it's maybe a little more interesting. I have to let somebody else decide that. But it really changes inside you. Well, and this role for you of Gene is so intense, especially the relationship oh. between you and, and, and Bill Hader's Barry. And I saw the, the, the trailer, and I know there's some very interesting twists and turns this season. Your, your character, without giving everything away, knows something that Barry did, and there's an element of revenge here. And so this intensity is just going to get even deeper. Well, that is true. Now, remember uh, the end of season two, which, by the way, that shot of me lying in bed was shot on stage 19 on Paramount Lot, the very soundstage we shot Happy Days for 10 years. That's awesome. So here I am, all these years later, shooting this other wonderful show in the same spot. That was amazing. That's fun. Okay, so we are left knowing that Bill Hader's character Mm -hmm. killed the love of my life. I finally, fi- I finally found somebody who is filling my heart, and he has ripped her away. And now, 
the third season starts. Yeah. That's going to be fabulous. That's going to be fabulous. Henry, stick around with us for just a few more minutes. We're talking to TV legend Henry Winkler. The new season of HBO's uh, Barry premieres this Sunday, and we'll continue our conversation after a look at your Friday night traffic. Henry, you played so many familiar characters, you know, from Happy Days, Arrested Development, The Waterboy. You mean something so different to different generations. What do people you run into, like fans, want to talk about uh, the most with you? Well, you know what is great is that it all depends on the generation. And I know exactly when they grew up because they will mention all those. Then there's Scream in yeah. there, yeah. Parks and Rec. Yeah. Uh, it all depends on, on how old they are. And it is so lovely because um, there's always a smile on their face. Yeah, you've touched so many people. You know, at 27, you got the Fonz. At 72, you got Gene on Barry. You've been, you've been, living, this, you've been living the dream for 50 years, my friend. Yes, and I do not take that for granted for one minute. I mean, there are men my age sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring, yeah. maybe have put the phone in the closet and put <laughs> it away. Yeah. And I here I am in this vibrant, funny, twisted, <laughs> uh, smart show. I, I'm overwhelmed. And I get to, you know, I get to work with Bill Hader, who yeah. is my director and my star, and he is also generous. You know, if I do something that makes him laugh, he will. You know, you can see sometimes in a scene where his shoulders are bouncing up and down because uh, he's enjoying whatever the other person is doing. I love that. And I know, you know, it hasn't been officially renewed yet, but I know the fourth season is already being written, concepted, and everything else. So, you know, hoping, yeah, hoping that can help himself. <laughs> I hope to see. Well, I hope the show lasts a long time because it's it's so much Thank fun. You. A Thank few you. a few months ago, uh, you you had some memorabilia in your personal collection. You put it up for auction, including yes. one of your original leather jackets. Was it time to let some of this stuff go? You know what? It really was. I this is what happened during the pandemic. I started looking in the nick in in the in the nooks and crannies of the house. Yeah, we all and did. I found yeah. twenty seven boxes wow. and I went, Oh my god, look at this, this is great. I have no idea what's in here. And as I went through it, I had no idea I had kept that. Wow. And I thought, if I haven't seen it in twenty, thirty, forty years, maybe it's time to give it to the universe. Now, when uh, after the first year of Happy Days, the original jacket was stolen. Okay. And uh, no one knew. So they made six, and they put them under lock and key. They fit me for a, a leather jacket. One we gave to the Smithsonian. Yeah, yeah. One, Gary, rest his soul, Marshall, uh, took. I had three. And one, uh, we ripped out the lining when I water skied and jumped the shark. Right. <laughs> right. So I kept two, and I had the overalls that I wore when I was at the garage. Wow. I had T-shirts. I had, I had stuff that was given to me from every show I've produced. That's great. That I've been in, that I guest starred on. It was amazing. You know, there was something also I remember in the beginning of the series. Uh, the Fonz character did not wear a leather jacket. He wore a windbreaker. What was the yes. windbreaker all about? They were convinced that I would be um, associated with crime hmm. if I wore leather. So I could do everything but wear leather. 
until Gary, Gary Marshall made a deal with ABC and said he will only wear leather when we put um, Fonzie's bike in the scene. And the ABC said, okay. And on his way back to the studio, that was at ABC, which is in Century City, um, which is a, a small enclave in, in L.A. on the way to the beach. Okay. That's where ABC was housed at that time. And on his way back to Paramount Lot, he called the writer's room and said, never write another scene without the bike. <laughs> and the rest is history there. And the rest is history. And now it's um, in the Smithsonian. Isn't that something? I, I've seen that. I've seen that at the Smithsonian. That's pretty cool. I mean, you're there with Archie Bunker's chair and uh, Kermit the Frog and all kinds of other great uh, it iconic items. It is amazing, yeah. to tell you the truth. Yeah. Well, your character and the show became such a cultural phenomenon at that time. And, I mean, you went quickly from a supporting player to one of the stars of the show. And I got to assume that the success and visibility came very quickly. Was it overwhelming? Very quickly. Was it overwhelming at the time? You know, it was overwhelming just because more people talked to me than I knew in my life. Sure. You know, and... And they stopped me everywhere I went, and I couldn't. I couldn't get over that. I went to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, to make a personal appearance, and three thousand people were at the airport at eleven thirty at night. And I thought, oh, oh my goodness! I'm, I'm here. If I walk through this, I'm spoiling somebody's party. And somebody <laughs> said, the party is for you. Wow, that was amazing. Absolutely was. Yeah. Absolutely was. Yeah. Hey, in a couple of weeks, you're giving a commencement address to some very lucky graduates. What a thrill that must be. You know what it is? Because I tell them what I've learned, that they're going to be fine, that they have to be honest about their talent, and then they have to be tenacious. And if they march with a positive attitude toward their dream, there is no reason you cannot live that dream. Which is how you lived your life. I'm proof. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you've lived your life. I was told I would never achieve. Right, 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 exactly. And I know with with some challenges, and I know, before I let you go, Henry, I know you and Lynn Oliver, you know, have written Alien Superstar, all that Hank Zipser series, which is is about some of those struggles that, you know, you never thought you would make it. Uh, What's coming up next? Are you writing, you've got to be writing some other books. So we've just written our 38th novel together. Wow. That's great. And it, is, uh, it comes out next year. And I will just tell you, it is about a little duckling on a beautiful pond in New Hampshire who dreams of being a detective. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And her best friend, a salamander, says to her, I, you know what? You're going to be great. I know it. You could do anything you want. See, and every one of your books are like that. They're motivational for the kids. Yeah. Yeah. No question. Very cool. TV legend Henry Winkler, HBO's Barry, season three, or Sunday at 9 central, and will stream on HBO uh, Max. Uh, Can I ask you one question? Yes, sir. How how's your family? Family is doing great. Got a twenty one year old, a sixteen year old, and a ten year old. So life is really Unbelievable. busy. Unbelievable. <laughs> That's great. Thank you, Henry. I appreciate that. We'll talk soon. Absolutely the best to you. Be well. Safe travels. Bye. All right. Bye bye now. 
And Chicago's own Bob Odenkirk joins us tonight. Hi, Bob. Glad to have you back on the show. Very good to talk to you. It's the final season premiere, and now beginning its sixth season, you continue to make this dark character likable. Well, I give a lot of credit to the writers because they wrote a um, spirited uh, fellow who uh, <laughs> yeah. is, is, is very entertaining to watch. Says, he says a lot of funny things. And frankly, he's uh, very often he's entertaining himself. He's he's you know he's smiling <laughs> yeah. at his own antics. Yeah. And um, he, I think people are uh, audiences. It, it's kind of infectious his um, his joy at what he's doing. And and even though he's very often being duplicitous or using someone or. Um, in some way doing something like a con, which can, you know, which is uh, ethically uh, questionable. He's having so much fun doing it, and he's so inspired <laughs> yeah. at, his, um, at his plans that it's very hard not to like a person who's uh, trying to win, even if they're trying to win in a uh, deceitful manner. Well, I don't even want to say it's like watching a car crash, because you know you, you want to see what's going on and what's happening. You know what he's doing is kind of devious. But it just makes you, I it think, is, want though. more, it, right? It yeah. Is so, he, he's a he's a car crash. He's a human. <laughs> uh, he's a human accident that is happening, and he's he's running down the road, yeah. smashing into things, and we're all sitting back and enjoying it. Yeah. But the really truly, um, the the moments where he's truly a, a bad guy, I think, are the moments where you can see him have an option to do do something right or be be a more um, human person and he makes the choice to manipulate or hurt someone and those don't come all the time you know those are those yeah. are come along once in a while the episode 2 that just played has a has a moment in it that it's very unjustified from what you can tell uh, except if you know the character and if you know where he's going. But otherwise, there's no justification for the way he turns on those two guys who run the copier um, company and, and give him a job, offer him a job, and then he turns sure. and tells them they were uh, they were clowns to, um, to believe what he had to say. He was a good guy. Yes. It's amazing what a good <laughs> yeah. person they um, invented Saul out of. He was a very likable uh, Chicagoan from Cicero, a good Catholic boy right. um, who had some bad, he had some uh, instincts that went the wrong way, and he had some talents that were easily manipulated into the wrong, uh, into, you know, un- unethical, um, fa- you know, um, plots and plans. But he was a good guy, and um, he's becoming uh, a not good guy. State player on 720 WGN. We're talking to Chicago's own Bob Odenkirk on the sixth and final season of AMC's Better Call Saul. So comedy uh, is something that has always been in your blood. And when you were growing up in Naperville, you were writing sketches even before high school. Yeah, well, mostly I started in junior high at Jefferson Junior High School in Naperville. Um, and I had a couple teachers there who uh, encouraged me to write sketch comedy pieces that were informational as part of my um, projects in, um, I believe that was seventh grade. Okay. And uh, that was really the start for me. Those teachers, 
I think I wrote five, four or five sketches over the course of a year, and we performed them for the classes. Got wow. a lot of good laughs. Yeah. And um, got some great grades and got a lot of encouragement from the teachers for that. There's no doubt that that was a, uh, an important thing for me uh, that made me feel like this was a skill I might have. It still took a long time for me. When you live in Chicago, when you live in Naperville, and you live in the outskirts of a bigger city, you know, the idea of show business is so far away from <laughs> yeah. where you live. And sure. It, it's yeah, it's, it would, took me a long, long time to just imagine that I could actually, uh, uh, that it was legitimate for me to try. Well, and even being in the Burbs, I mean, you listen to Chicago radio growing up here. Uh, who, who were some of your influences? Who were some of the guys you listened to growing up? Well, look, Steve Dahl is absolutely number one influence for me. Um, in if you're talking Chicago radio, sure. um, I, I think I related to his anarchic uh, sense of humor, his cynicism, and his uh, his sarcasm, which I, weirdly, Steve is from California, but he's right. got a very Chicago, I mean, it's there's a reason he's been on the air in Chicago for most of his career. Oh, no, he's I mean, got a Chicago way about very, him. Yeah, there's a very Chicago point of view on the world, which is, um, you know, skeptical and um, very down-to-earth and Maybe even at times a little mean, but always to good ends. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> to make you laugh. <laughs> yeah. And to, to tear yeah. down to tear down the people who are full of themselves. Oh man, we had and we had so many radio greats here in in Chicago as well. But Bozo, what about Bozo? I, I can't ask a, a question on a station with the oh, call yeah. letters WGN oh, without Bob Bell. Bob Bell, who played Bozo when I was a kid, and even through my teen years. He was one of the most naturally funny. I put him next to Bill Murray as like uh, funniest Chicagoan wow. ever. Yeah, and uh, I mean they're both naturally, easily, without trying, so likably funny. And 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 yeah, I mean that's just to be envied and 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 treasured. The the point of view of uh, of Bob Bell and that voice he had, and and the same of. Uh, I, of course, I love Bill Murray. Yeah, he's just the best. I've heard you do a little Bob Bell voice before. You're you're damn close, man. It's almost like he's right hey, there. Cookie, yeah. it was a little bit like a drunk guy, a little bit a guy with a stuffed up nose. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. It is true, but you know what was great. cool is he was he was entertaining kids, but he was entertaining every adult in that room oh, and on the air as well, my. right? <laughs> Listen, any adult watching. Without being remotely scatological, remotely <laughs> crude, yeah. he was. You were just. It, it was his point of view, yeah. and and it was his uh, his, his good natured, you know, kind of ironic dance. It, 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 he was he was a genius, and I I sure wish he'd done some you know sketch comedy or or any kind of adult kind of performance or yeah. comedy. I don't know what his story was. I'll, I'll always be curious about what kind of guy he actually was and and what he aspired to in life because from my point of view, he could have been anything. He could have yeah. been a movie star and, and, and uh, you know, you never know with the Chicagoan whether, you know, some sometimes people make the choice to just go, yeah, that's okay. I like living in Chicago and I like... yeah being around my kids and raising my family and being being a dad and 
I don't need to spend my whole life or give over my whole life to some career. And and I I really yeah I love Bob Bell and he uh, if only I could be touched by some of the natural humor of of those great Chicagoans that would be the gift of all time. And Monty Python was a big influence for you too. Yeah, Monty Python on Channel 11, they played it on Channel 11, but yes, also did. Channel 11 played, I mean, Python was like my guiding light, really it was. I mean, the smartness of it, the absurdity of it, the silliness of it, adults doing material that was that silly was like, spoke to me, spoke to my heart and made me happy in a deep, deep way. Um, but also Channel 11 uh, played other British shows yeah, that did. influenced me, like The Goodies. Yep. And um, uh, Dave Allen Dave at Allen. large. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I don't know who played Marty Feldman's Comedy Machine. I think that was on network. But that was uh, some of the Python guys helped with that, I believe. And, uh, and so that British comedy that came through Channel 11 um, really got into my head. The Two Ronnies. Watched The Two Ronnies when I was young. And they played it there on Channel 11. So, you know, that really got into my head and, and helped me develop the voice that I had in comedy. So you have all that and all that influence that you grew up with. Then you're at Second City. You're studying, yeah. you're studying with Del Close. You meet Robert Smigel there. Then you right. start writing for Saturday Night Live. I mean, this is the pattern. Yeah. The journey of your career is, is always amazing to me. It's a weird journey. You know, before all that, you know, I... Second, the, the whole scene in Chicago was different than it is now. There were far fewer classes, and Second City really only had these. They they weren't very structured classes. So I actually took classes at a place called the Players Workshop of Second City, which had a more uh, structured program that took about a year and a half to complete, and and felt like it really got you somewhere. And um, I met uh, David, or I met uh, Robert Smigel there. But I also did comedy at uh, Southern Illinois University with my right. friend Tim Thomas. I did a show called The Primetime Special, and we had a lot of fun. I did a show that was kind of like Mr. Show, which I later did on HBO, which uh, kind of a semi-themed sketch show. I love that show. Brilliant. Um, Nothing short of brilliant. Well, thank you. Well, thanks. I, I, I had such freedom at Mr. Show. HBO let us do whatever we wanted. And uh, they actually, actually truly didn't care if anybody watched as long as <laughs> people felt they should watch, yeah. as long as it created a ruckus. Well, think about as this. As long as it made people, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Well, think about this, though. When the show went on the air, compared to today, you know, you said there was, there was limited places to do a lot of this stuff. There was limited uh, networks or that would even air something like this. It, that was groundbreaking oh, yeah. in and of itself, being on HBO. Oh, absolutely. There were not many alternate uh, places to do a show, uh, to do an original show. Um, we, we were very lucky, the right executives at the right time, and to some extent, HBO was not yet successful. And that's, that can be a very good thing, because um, until they had the Sopranos and Sex and the City, right. they didn't have sort of success that they were trying to duplicate. They weren't there was nothing to duplicate. They didn't have any success. Um, so we were, we came in in a corner of the market and got to just do our thing for four years. To me, Mr. Show, when we did it right, we did, number one, we did a couple really great sketches, like the audition, pre-tape mm -hmm. call-in show, 
um, young people and their companions, the story of Everest, the lie detector, um, the the the. Um, Commercials of the Future was another a great one. Change for a dollar was another favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of a lot of really just solid sketches with great ideas, well executed, beginning, middle, and end, and and kind of not uh, leaning too much on on the moment. Just just you could do them now and you'd get the same laughs. You know, you'd, you'd get just as good uh, a reaction from an audience. And I know there's audiences out there that still want to laugh. But we are going deeper into this world of political correctness and being offended by everything. And that doesn't make doing comedy very easy today, does it? The one thing that irks me is if the, the piece that is upsetting you is advertised as comedy, is, is clearly set up as comedy, if it takes place in a comedy club, if it's in a comedy uh, theatrical show, if a stand-up comedian is doing it on stage, then you, I, I, I'm, you have to, you have to recognize that everyone has, there's a basic agreement that this is not meant, um, except as a, uh, a, a provoker of laughter. And right. if it doesn't make you laugh, well, then they failed. Yeah, right. But it's not a polemic. It's not a person lecturing you. Yeah. The, the difficult part is when you get into things like Twitter, I think, really um, kind of people did things on Twitter before they figured out what Twitter meant to everyone else. They, 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 for some people, they said, oh, I see it's a platform for my jokes. And that had not been established mm-hmm. yet. And in the end, that's not what Twitter is. But I think a lot of comedians in particular thought, oh, what a perfect, it's just a stage for my comedy jokes. Right. But the thing is that that isn't what had been established yet about what Twitter was. And and so I think now we're finally, after all these years, getting closer to what Twitter is to other people. And that's what defines it, you know. But at the same time, I don't think it's fair to have a person go in a comedy club and see a comedian and the comedian does provocative material and then walk out and treat it like they went and saw a political speech. Yeah, then their intention walking in there didn't. wasn't right. Yeah, then their intention walking in there wasn't right. Yeah. If you were if you weren't going there to laugh, then you're in the wrong place. Right, right. And 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 you cannot laugh, you cannot laugh. That's for sure. That's up to you. Yeah. And, and if a comedian is not making people laugh, then he's failing. So if he's doing all kinds of rude, crude stuff and saying nasty things and you're not laughing, well, he's the loser in yeah. that interchange. Absolutely. But you can't take what's said in there and walk out and go, this person believes that, they spoke to me about it, they said that's what they believed. Comedy is a way of being honest, but it's a roundabout way of being honest. And if you really want to tell people what you think, well, go ahead and write an essay and put it in the paper. And, sure. and there's a million places for that as well. Different but, form. Yeah. yeah. Different form. Yeah. I, so anyway, I think it's been hard for everyone in the audience sometimes to figure out. And we have these like entirely new platforms, and we just haven't sorted out yet what what we're doing on them yet. What, what we're all agreed is happening there. Sure. Um, yeah. So... 
Well, great insight to all this, and so looking forward to the sixth and final season premiere, Better Call Saul, Monday at 8 on AMC. And Bob also has a new book out called Comedy, 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 Drama, and you can pick that up at your local bookseller. Bob Odenkirk, everybody, thanks so much for joining us. Very good. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Bob. Chicago's own Bob Odenkirk. Top stories are next here on 720 WGN. All right. It's Dave Player here on 720 WGN. So Ginger Z spent five years as a meteorologist here in the Windy City for NBC5 Chicago. She's currently the chief meteorologist at ABC News. Ginger has weathered many storms, but she has also weathered storms in her personal life. In her new book, A Little Closer to Home, she opens up about many traumatic events from her past that have shaped who she is today. And joining us live from New York is Ginger Z. Welcome in, Ginger. I am so happy to be here. Thank you. And yes, still have my 312 number. <laughs> I know. I said that before the call. I love that. True Chicago. And even though you've spent some time in the Midwest and other areas, I love that 312 is still your number. That's awesome. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Dave. Absolutely. You know, you opened up your life to readers in your first book uh, called Natural Disaster. And the response, and based on me reading this book, was enormous. And now I know why. It really was. I I could not have told you because I didn't intend to write a book, let alone a memoir, which still that word to me is strange. And (laughs) I don't know what it necessarily means, except I realized that I wasn't writing it just about my life. I was sharing parts of my life that connected to other people so deeply that they would write me on the regular and say, you saved my life. My little story saved their life. And that type of gravity is why I ended up writing another book. Love that. I love that. Well, and I know when you wrote the intro to the to the book at first, to you it was kind of about healing until you kind of shared that a little bit and you discovered it's really about the hard work you have to do and go through on that journey, on that path before the healing begins. And you still gotta do more of that after after the healing as well. That's what the book's really about, is the maintenance of the healing. I think I was under some sort of impression that if I finally got into that trauma or I finally went and dug in, that your mental health just, you know, gets better. And it does. It becomes easier. There's a lot of parallels you can make to your physical health because when you haven't worked out in your whole life, say, and then you say, you know what, this is the year. It's January 1st. I'm going to go for a year and have a personal trainer, eat right, and you do it, and you get in sick shape. You can't just stop and have it all stay the same. That's the same thing with mental health. And I think once I got that through my head and into my brain and really focused on brain health and the well-being of the maintenance of it, that's when this book came together. Well, that's one of the things about January that I find very intriguing is people will start working out for two weeks and then it's over. I mean, you really do have to stick to it or dry January, you know. Maybe a dry Monday, but I mean, you have to actually right. to do that. You've got to let that go for a long time. But I think this this pandemic has taken a toll on mental health for people of all ages. And it's brought, yeah. you know, because it's brought changes to how you live your life and uncertainty and altered daily routines and financial pressures, social isolation, you know, information overload is probably the biggest thing. Rumors, misinformation mm-hmm. that's out there. But I think it's really brought real attention to mental health in America. Oh, absolutely. And and the part of mental health that I think is one of the toughest parts to get over, and that's there's all these people that have now been introduced to the uncertainty and likely anxiety, which can sometimes then spark depression. And say they've never had something to this degree before, 
they may say, well, listen, everybody else is in the same boat. Like, why am I feeling this way? It's not, they, they don't put enough weight to it. And there are a lot of people that are going to ignore it until it gets to that point because they've never been introduced to it before. And that's what the really frightening part is to me is that there are all these people who are out there who have never maybe felt this way and they don't know what to do. And the stigma, right, of, okay, I have depression or I have anxiety, I think has loosened a bit. I think people are starting to say that. Mm -hmm. The problem is I don't know that they know what to do to make it better. I agree. No, I absolutely agree. You actually have to, though, make it a priority in your life. So, you know, if, you, if you're going to talk about it, if you're going to do so, a, some little things, you really have to make that time for yourself. You know, just like you would take your time to go to the doctor to take care of a cold or anything else, you have to do that yep. the same way with your mental health. And the same with the gym. And when I got that also as my priority, I did make my priority. I flipped my pyramid of health. I always say it's, I put that mental health first. So say I don't have an extra hour in the day, which a lot of us feel like we don't have. I carve out, and you hear people say this, well, I always carve out at least 30 minutes for activity. I carve out 30 minutes, no matter what, for meditation, even if it's yoga, like guided meditation through yoga, something that is active so I can get a little of both in, and time to sit, and this sounds wild, but interview myself. Mm. Even those little check-ins I do throughout the day add up to a minute or two where I say, how am I feeling? What are those emotions coming from? Where are they going to go from here? That dedication or at least the mindfulness of it is fascinating what it can do for your mental health. Well, and there's certain things people do to cope with that that don't do that. And it's, you know, you know, sometimes it's it's escapism. So there's several ways you can do that. Um, It is, you know, uh, ignoring it and keeping yourself busy so you avoid the actual topic. And you've noted for yourself, you know, you were a professional people pleaser. Like maybe that was part of your shield. I was executive level people pleaser <laughs> and and producer. And it's so funny because I'm sure, you know, around our business, the word producer, I always kind of look back and think, what is that? Everybody produces things all day, don't we? But we do. And I was using what I deemed as kind of success was getting a lot of stuff done. The more things I had in my calendar, the better. But as you just said, that was running. That was running as fast as I could away from myself, my thoughts, and away from my feelings. And in a way, slowing down and being able to write this book particularly, because this book was written on my couch, in my basement, in a pandemic, this was Mm -hmm. the first deep dive and check-in I was able to do that gave me that time to reprioritize. I love that. I love that. And there's a million stories in this book, and I love that because they're brutal honesty. I mean, brutal <laughs> honesty. I mean, you, just, you talk about working at a country club since you were 16 years old, and there was a wine tasting, and you let it get the best of you. But it, it was one of those first. I want to. I want you to share the story a little bit because it just kind of sets the tone for this. Is you saw an opportunity to escape, and we'll get to some of that of some of this early childhood trauma and divorce from your parents and some other things. But you saw this as a great opportunity to kind of disappear for a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, whenever it's, it, it, it was very hard because there were always kind of the two sides to me, which I write about in the book, too. There is the goody two-shoe kind of like shy um, kind of and all of these things. And then there's the social butterfly. And a lot of us have kind of these two sides. And sure. to me, they were always battling. And in that particular story, I think I was feeling like I was, maybe in the place to come out into my social butterfly, right into my moment of, 
of what it was. I was in a great, healthy relationship, um, but I had had trauma. And that trauma is what I had not dealt with. And so any time there was a point where I could find an escape, mm-hmm. and alcohol to me was typically one of those escapes, I would and could often let it get the better of me. And so in that case, it was not just a wine tasting. Wine, I think I would have been fine, and the story would never be a story. <laughs> but right, right. in that case, the the woman who was serving the wine, she had a brand new um, mixer, and she wanted us all to try it because the reason we were there is because we were um, helping to buy for the club and manage the club, right. and you know we had pretty high position. Right. And she poured us something called Red Bull. Mm-hmm. and mix something called vodka with it. Mm-hmm. Huh. And I don't think that my body knew what to do with that after yeah. it had already done a wine tasting. And whether it was the feeling I got from Red Bull, which, you know, I don't know if you remember your first mm-hmm. Red Bull. Mm-hmm. Yes, I don't I know do. if they should be legal. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Or Monster or anything else. I know when I see people just gulping that down, I'm like, oh, God. Oh, <laughs> Without alcohol. Yeah. And, and remember, this is she's introducing it to us as a sales pitch. So that's how not known it is. I mean, this was really diving into something that nobody had ever touched and the end result is not great. And I mean, to the point where I I nearly lose my life, which is so wild to think. Um, And and it turns funny. So there are really funny parts of the story. (laughs) Um, I don't know how deep you want me to get. Yeah, go deep. Because you were talking about your, you, you, you were, you were just in a shower, cold shower, like trying to like, wake up and get out of this thing and your your you f- you fell down My your butt cheek. <laughs> your yeah, butt no, cheek blocked the bl- the drain yeah that's why the whole chapter is called the drain because yeah. my cheek got stuck in the drain <laughs> and my boyfriend at the time had put me in the shower to clean me up and sober me up but when that cheek got in the drain it's a stand up shower i still don't understand the physics of it because it's sealed but i didn't yeah. know this would happen yeah. i crumpled down as one does when they're passing out and the water nearly gets above my nose, and I'm passed out. Yeah. And then he comes in, he opens the door, the whole of everything in the shower, including me, pours out, and he saves my life. It is the wildest. And we, we had a good laugh, but also kind of a good, oh, gosh. Wake that up would have been the wake-up moment, really. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I wish it would have been a wake-up moment, because unfortunately, all the way through my years in Chicago, I was using alcohol as a Band-Aid. No, no question. That's what people, and I hate to say it, but that's what people do to escape. So, you know, I, I know I've, I've done it. I, I know there's countless people that that are doing it now on the weekend, and and they're and they're that's what they do. I mean, like almost every weekend. So sometimes, you know, that feels at the moment like it's the right decision, but you don't want to face what you're really feeling. So whether it's depression or just stress and anxiety over work or relationship or whatever it is. You know, America and the way we've kind of set this up in society is you've created this level of escapism where, yeah, well, let's go drinking, let's go to a club, let's go have, you know, whatever. And then it kind of gets out of hand. And yeah, you do disappear. But when you wake up the next morning, that challenge is still right in front of you. Correct. And that is something that when I finally got the help I needed, I was finally able to realize what I was doing when I would reach for a glass of wine or when I, now I should separate these things because I was fortunate to be able to, I never got to the point where it was alcoholism. It was absolutely the bandaid for my disorders and my mental health issues. There are very distinct differences, but I will say that that I remember the pivot point. I remember after really after meeting my husband, 
And after I had been in some really intense therapy and after I'd been hospitalized, I had taken off six months from drinking. And it was the first time in my life where I really used my ability to control because I was great at controlling other things, restricting food, lots of things I know how to control. And I flipped it to feel what feeling was like when I didn't have something to take me away. And um, it's really it's such a special place to be because now when I have a glass of wine, I actually enjoy it. I enjoy every sip. I think about where it was made and who made it. And I'm super nerdy, like with the, you know, like the terroir and what was the soil. And so I get really into the microclimate, but that, that is what I believe it's for. It's an art, right? Just like anything else in agriculture. And I, I am so glad that I've gotten to the point of doing that. And I cannot tell you the last time that I actually got, the point of being drunk beyond a buzz yeah and yeah. my my husband sometimes is like i kind of wish i would have met you and just seen what you were like i'm like no you didn't you do not want to know me <laughs> that's awesome that's sweet he's never seen that it's yeah. sweet but it's probably you know. good that he didn't yeah i know i know yeah. you know but you have to look back and we're talking about this very quickly but there was a lot of deep digging and a lot of work that had to be done but some of the things that affect you later in life you know do happen at an early age and divorce is one of those things when you see your parents get divorced and then they then they're with somebody else and then you're dealing with a new spouse or a new whatever it is like you know then sometimes you're switching schools that you have to find new friends mm-hmm. like it is just compounded one over another you at some point you have to deal with that head on and whether you're yeah. doing it yourself or you're doing with the guidance of friends or others or therapists it's a good thing to do. And divorce shouldn't be ever just kind of skimmed over as, well, you know, it happens all the time. It doesn't matter if it happens all the time. It is incredibly challenging for a child's psyche, especially depending on the age. Because I've, and, and this is what has given me such agency and ownership over the narrative of what my story means. And it's really given me the ability to release the and forgive my parents. Yeah. Because I didn't understand the impacts. Now that I have understanding of the impacts, I've been able to speak it through, especially with my mom. It's so powerful to just be able to put words to it. I couldn't have done that when I was seven. Right. Um, I didn't realize how much it impacted my identity and the formation or the lack of the beautiful part is now that I've done all this work fusing my identity. I really feel like I've kind of been like a fuse box that's been reset and I'm ready to light up. We're talking to Ginger Z from ABC TV, really insightful, honest new book called A Little Closer to Home, How I Found the Calm After the Storm. And there's more when we come back on 720 WGN. All right, I just told people what you do. And as a society, we do that all the time. So I'm I'm Dave Plyer. I'm a host of WGN Radio. I'm a chair of the Broadcast Museum. I'm a co-CEO of Retail First, all these labels. And these titles, and you talk about labels, is is what we do for a living. But you write in the book Mm -hmm. that... It's so closely tied to what we do, but it's not really who we are. And sometimes those titles define us, and there's a lot of pressure under that. There's so much right when we are in garden. What do you want to be when you grow up? My kids are asked that all the time when people meet them. It is kind of just our cliche fallback question. When you meet somebody new, well, what do you do? Because that is like asking about the weather, I guess. Right. It's like kind of that thing that you just talk about. But if we really step back and think about what we're doing by saying that, especially to kids, it's there's nothing else to you. We don't we may even skip over. How are you? 
yeah. and ask, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And that, to me, has to really be looked at again. I think we take take a step back, take a moment. It's important, of course, because we all want to be a productive part of society and we want to do that. But perhaps there are other questions we can start asking. And then the most important part is ask more questions. It's fine to ask that question if you're going to ask many others to get to know someone in more depth. But I think that's the really biggest lesson I've realized. Is, and, and I think a lot of it came from me being in the position I am. People see me for 30 seconds at a time and they think they know me. They think they know everything yeah, about me from yeah, 30 yeah, seconds yeah, because sure. they know my title and they think they know a lot of other things. And I thought, well, that's a perfect example of how we treat everybody. We need to get a little deeper into those circles of identity if we really want to connect to people. And I hope this book helps people do that beyond the first label. And, and the other power of labels and, and sometimes a negative power, and it's hard not to do because it's human nature. And I'll tell you right now, I would never say it in front of my six-year-old, but this kid is going to be and already is a, a perfectionist. It's ah. like it's inherent, right? So I, but, but what I won't do is say that in front of him because that's just going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right, right, right. And what I'll do is set him up, hopefully, with the best tools that I've learned, thankfully, because it looks a lot like me when I was that age, in, and hopefully learn how to regulate those emotions and that need for perfection and success earlier. I would say some of those tools, and that's the most important thing that you also talk about. You also talk about the journey in your in your career as well, which is great. But you know, those tools that got you through the storms uh, are are critical. But one of the most important things I took away f- from it is those challenges in life. They're really only temporary. Yeah, and that's the most important thing. Whenever I speak to anyone who's saying, "Listen, I've got a, a daughter, a son, an aunt, an uncle." who needs help and I don't know what to do for for them, I think the first thing to do is if you can give that sliver of hope and that little morsel of a reminder that every moment, including their darkest moments, are temporary. All the, you know, when we, we put so much value on happiness, which is so odd because I think I've felt happiness seven times today, but I also felt incredible amounts of frustration, sadness, all of these things that are this constant wave of energy that we go through in a day. What I think we really could just realize is every one of those emotions is temporary. Things matter. Trauma certainly matters. You can't delete it out of your story. You have to process things. And if things are terrible and you're gonna, it's going to matter to you a year from now, you're allowed to let it suck. And you're allowed yeah. to just sit in it for a little bit. But to go back and ruminate over things that you will not remember next week, which is almost everything. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> question. I like to remind people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anyone who reads this book, and I encourage our audience to do just that, it's an honest assessment of the challenges of life and how you take those steps. And it does take some hard work sometimes to come out on the other end to be happier and healthier and knowing how to deal with with those uh, situations every day. And we only touched upon a few of the stories. And again, I love your brutal honesty. Congrats on getting this message out there for everyone to know and understand and hopefully provide some guidance. Thank you. And I, I will leave it just because I feel like it's my strongest way of wrapping up the book. And, and in that vein of being temporary, I hope because I'm a scientist and I understand the earth and how energy works, yeah. I've learned that, you know, storms don't last forever. They can't and won't. Great not analogy. how the atmosphere works, yeah, but it's also not how life works. Love that analogy. I love that analogy. Always a pleasure talking to you. Let's do it again soon, Ginger. Thank you so much. Thanks. Happy New Year to you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now.
That was Ginger Z. Her new book is a little closer to home. Top stories from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom next here on 720 WGN. We're going to spend one full hour coming up with a true TV icon. James Burroughs has directed over a thousand episodes of television. His directorial work includes Cheers, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Rhoda, Frazier, Friends, Two and a Half Men, The Big Bang Theory, Mike and Molly, Taxi, Will and Grace, Caroline in the City, and that's just to name a few. The legendary sitcom director has spent, <laughs> it's a long list, five decades making America laugh, and his new memoir is directed by James Burroughs. All this from a man who helped launch the careers of Ted Danson, Kelsey Grammer, Woody Harrelson, Jennifer Aniston, Deborah Messing, and Melissa McCarthy. He is a television icon. He's James Burroughs. Jim, welcome in. Thank you so much. That's a lot to read, but man, this is your career. It's five decades of amazing television. I know. It, uh, it, it went by in a flash, but I had fun. That's all that counts. That's all that counts. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, you know, you know, the great book. I mean, this is a flash down memory lane. And I know, you know, there was a 2016 NBC special where there was a tribute to you and all the shows. And there is just so much more in-depth stories. It was like a reunion to watch that. But the stories in this book are just wonderful. And, you know, you started off, your father was Abe Burroughs, a celebrated comedy writer for radio and Broadway. And you wrote in the book that you never really wanted to be in show business. But then you attended New York's High School of Music and Art, the Yale School of Drama. What changed your mind? Um, I had nothing else to do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was... I, there was no way I was going to be in the business because my dad was a legend in New York. And, uh, you know, he, uh, I didn't want to go into that business. I know I didn't do any theater in college or, or high school or anything like that. And then, uh, when I got out of college, I had to, I wanted to deferment not to go to the Vietnam war. So I went to the Yale school of drama and then it kind of, my my eyes opened up a bit, and I said, "Oh, I see what's going on here." And my father, my father taught me when I didn't know when I was learning. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I that kind of opened my eyes, and then, you know, I got odd jobs in the theater and stuff like that, and then I got into television. I was lucky. Yeah, I was gonna say like directing, like you know, when you were when you were going to school and, and just starting to dip your toe into this business and, and Broadway and everything. Did was directing at the top of your mind? No, no, I just needed a job. I just it's <laughs> uh, great. I was, you know, one of my first jobs out of the uh, of, of uh, graduate school was I was an assistant to the assistant stage manager on uh, ill-fated musical. My dad wrote. Breakfast at Tiffany's. So that was really my first exposure. After that, I, you know, I stage managed a little bit, but as a stage manager, you're, you get to direct the understudies. So I was directing there, and then I did regional theater and dinner theater and stuff like that until I landed an opportunity in California. As I say, you first met Mary Tyler Moore in '66 in this Broadway production, um, and you know she was on the Dick Van Dyke Show, so that's how she was best known. Of course, one of the most legendary shows of all time, but years later you wrote a letter to Mary because you met her, you knew her, and her husband, Grant Tinker, and you asked to work for MTM, her production company. Right, but I don't recommend that to the average person. I had <laughs> it doesn't... A, I had, it's not, it's, it doesn't work unless we had a connection because the musical that I worked on, the ill-fated musical, was 
Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was an abysmal failure. And, uh, you know, it only played four previews on Broadway. And she would come off stage crying and she would wrap her arms around me because I was in charge of her and Dick Chamberlain. And uh, so we had this bond. So that empowered me to write the letter. All right, we're talking to legendary TV producer James Burroughs, and there's more with him next here on 720 WGN. All right, it's Dave Player back with you here on 720 WGN. We're talking to legendary TV producer James Burroughs about his new book, directed by James Burroughs, Five Decades of Stories from the legendary director of Taxi, Cheers, Frasier, Friends, Will and Grace, and more. Jim, what shows did you grow up with that you take a look back now and saw them during your career as an inspiration? For me, uh... Uh, the Phil Silver Show, You'll Never mm-hmm. Get Rich, mm-hmm. Car 54, The Dick Van Dyke Show, I Love Lucy, those, those shows. I mean, I enjoyed them, but they didn't, they, they were no inspiration to me because when I watched them, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't headed for the theater. Right, right. Dick Van Dyke shows you mentioned, I mean, still today, you know, there's some shows that you know will last the test of time, and, and so many of the shows that you did. I mean, you can watch an episode of Cheers today, and it's still funny. I mean, you're not talking about politics and and things going on of the day. It's just great stories and great. It's a great sense of humor. But right out of the box, you were directing the Mary Tyler Moore Show and Bob Newhart and Phyllis and Rhoda. These were the top shows, like the quality shows when CBS remade itself in the early '70s and did that rural purge of all the shows that aired right. before it. You know, these were. Not only top-rated comedies, but quality programming as well. They were, you know, they were. It was the beginning of the golden age, probably the second golden age of television. You know, because you had All in the Family and uh, yeah. the Jeffersons and all of Norman's shows, which were uh, at the forefront back then. By the way, you got another twenty years to go to reach Norman's. Uh, he's gonna be a hundred this uh, summer. Is that crazy? Yeah, July twenty seventh. He's going to be one hundred years old. Yeah. And I just saw him uh, last week. Still working, and he's uh, he's as sharp as a tack. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah. There's great stories in the book on all the shows, and you know if you're a fan of any of these, and you're going to find some wonderful, wonderful behind the scene uh, moments. But Mary Tyler Moore, uh, you mentioned, was vocal about. The scripts, the quality of the scripts on the Mary Tyler Moore show. And, you know, there were some challenges, you know, and you made those challenges work. It was a rough episode. And Mary let you know that she was glad she made that investment in you because, you know, <laughs> the outcome was 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 at the end of the day. It was where it needed to be. Yeah, I never cry. I never cried so much in my life. When I heard those <laughs> oh, words before oh, the show. Awesome. Really? I I wasn't. I wasn't expecting. I never. I never thought that you know I, I would do the show and that would that would uh, catapult me into where it did. But I was so happy when she said it. I was. I did that first show not even caring about if I got another show. I was just doing it to to try to make the show better and funnier. Someone you admired, which was a part of the show, was Jay Sandrich. Um, you know, he was the ultimate, you know, television director, producer. He was the guy. Yeah, when I used to watch the Mary Tyler Moore show, uh, I would always see his name. Yeah. And I, uh, uh, he became my mentor. And uh, he was a dear friend. Unfortunately, passed away this year. Yeah. And, uh, but he was... 
he did uh, 75% of the Mayor Tyler Moore shows. And you can tell how, how well they were direct. It's funny you say that because, you know, probably, you know, I was born in 67. So I, me remembering Taxi and seeing James Burroughs and then seeing Cheers and James Burroughs and, and Friends and James Burroughs. You know, I'm, I'm being honest with you. I just knew I was going to see a quality show because you were behind it. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. No, nope. I wish it was my sole responsibility, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was, the writing was always exquisite. Yeah. I always had the best writing. Yeah. And which is critically important. But then, you know, you're doing Taxi, you know, uh, with, with Glenn and Les Charles. How did Cheers come about? Because that was, that is the show that you not only directed, but I mean, you created the show. That's got to be the, the gem uh, for you. We were, I was the director of Taxi and they were the producers of Taxi. Mm-hmm. Uh, under Jim, uh, Jim Brooks, Ed Weinberger, Stan Daniels and Dave Davis. And so we both had difficult times because the writing was, you know, it was it was tough writing, and then the cast was interplanetary. So uh, I, you know, I had a tough time molding them into a homogeneous group, which is what I tried to do. But we, in like the second year, our we both had the same agent, and he came to us. And he said, "You guys ought to do your own show." So he made a deal, and uh, out of that came Cheers. It's amazing. Why Boston? What? 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 And I know the answer to this story, but tell folks why you picked Boston as the location for the show. Well, it started out. We started out wanting to do Faulty Towers because we loved that show, mm-hmm. and then we said uh, most of the show would take place in the bar, and uh, maybe we should do a show about a bar. And then we were all rabbit sports fans, so we said we have to do a bar in a rabbit sports town, and it happened to be either Philly or Boston, and we chose Boston. That's great, because, I mean, it is so surrounded about that and, and the character of Sam. I was going to say, casting for Cheers, you knew about Ted Danson from previous work. Uh, Shelley Long was Chicago, Second City right here. But you narrowed right. things down to three pairs of actors and actresses and put them on stage to really understand the chemistry and who would be the best for the part. Yeah, we had an audition on, uh, like in February of 82. We uh, we put three couples out there, and far and away the best were were Ted, Ted and Shelley. That, they, were, they had the best chemistry, although the other two couples had things going for them. The first couple was Fred Dreyer and Julia Duffy, right. and... Uh, Sam Malone was originally uh, a, a wide receiver for the Patriots, and Freddie was a former football player right. for the Rams, right. defensive end. So he had that quality, but he just didn't have the funny yet. And then Billy Devane was an older Sam Malone, but really, really good and really, really, really funny. There was a um, a history to him, an age, an age quality, which made it interesting, but. Uh, from our perspective, the, uh, uh, the 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 most upside was Ted and Shelley. When Ted got the part, and he always looked so natural behind the bar from the very beginning. You sent him to a bartending school, didn't you? Yeah, he and Nikki went to bartending school. <laughs> That's and then, you know, Teddy was not a really athletic or anything like that. No, he wasn't a sports I, guy, right? Think, he was, yeah. No, I, he, I, I think it took him to his first baseball game. <laughs> 
and everything like that. So I had to, we worked on some of the characteristics of Sam. And one of the things I did was I hired, we hired Fred Dreyer to be on four shows, I think the first and second year. I remember that, yeah. And I said, I said when Fred walked on that stage in rehearsal, I said to Teddy, watch him. Watch him. That's the strut you need. That's the peacock. Right. That right. Sam Malone is. Yeah. You know, you know, watch him. Watch him how he moves. Watch him. Watch his eyes as he looks at pretty girls. Watch as he grabs his crotch. <laughs> you know, all these things yeah. that, you know, so Teddy uh, watched him, watched him, watching the girls, had all the looks down, and then went over and grabbed Fred's crotch. <laughs> ah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, at least Ted was taking accurate direction from you. We're talking to legendary TV producer James Burroughs, and there's more with Jim after the news next on 720 WGN. All right, Dave Player back with you here on 720 WGN. We're talking to legendary TV producer James Burroughs about his new book, directed by James Burroughs, Five Decades of Stories from the Legendary Director of Taxi, Cheers, Frasier, Friends, Will and & Grace, and more. You know, TV show themes are such a thing of the past now. And way back when, it told the story of the show. It set the tone. And the theme to Cheers is one of the most iconic of all time. That's because we did 25 minutes of content back then, and now they'd only do 20, 20 and a half minutes. So it's all, you know, it's all about commercials now. There were never as many commercials, so... When we told a story on Cheers, you could have time for a 30-minute theme song. And uh, you could go a couple of pages without a laugh. But now, you know, now now it, you can't do that. And that song was perfect for that show. Song was perfect. The ensemble was perfect. I mean, you, you, you know, it, 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 sometimes there's some shining stars, as you know, on a show. But this entire cast, the ensemble, made this show work. And it was a big ensemble. Oh yeah, and when one when we lost one of the ensemble, unfortunately we lost Nikki. Nick, right. He passed away, and we lost Shelley. Uh, when that happened, we were able, we were lucky enough to find somebody to replace them that was not the same as them, different, and yet as important to the show. As I say, that's the brilliance of of your casting and how you do things is. You, you don't want to replace the same character. You do want to create something new, and you've done it every single time. You mentioned Shelley Long leaving. You know, I love this story that you went back really to the script when you rebooted with Kirstie Alley of Ted Danson's character having him work for a woman, and that was the original premise in the early days of the show. When, when we had discussed the show and the characters and the boys went off to write it, it was a show about... Sam working for a woman. When I returned two weeks later from a vacation, there was a script on my doorstep, and the part of Diane Chambers had been created by Glenn and Les out of whole cloth. They created this character that was unbelievable. And uh, it's a tribute to them because it had never, that character had never appeared on television before. And the actress who played her was phenomenal. Without Shelley Long, there's no year two of Cheers. Well, here's the thing, too. You you, you have a spinoff. You got Frasier. And, you know, one of the longest-running 
characters, TV characters of all time. But it kind of extended that story. We got to see some of the the characters from Cheers appear now and then. But your legendary shows that you created just continued decade after decade. Uh, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, there's there's something about you know what I try to do is I treat everybody with kindness. I uh, I say to the cast, we're all in this lifeboat together. Everybody has an oar. No oar is bigger than the other person's oar. We're all rowing. It's a rough sea out there, but we row together, and we learn to like one another. Dare I say love one another. And if you do that, that's going to come across the screen. And as long as the writing keeps up, and I have these extraordinary actors, it's easy. We're talking to legendary TV producer James Burroughs, and there's more with him next here on 720 WGN. All right, Dave Plyer on 720 WGN. We're talking to legendary TV producer James Burroughs about his new book, directed by James Burroughs, Five Decades of Stories from the Legendary Director of Taxi, Cheers, Frasier, Friends, Will and Grace, and more. So one of your biggest hits, if not the biggest, is Friends. And there have been generations of the show that have embraced it year after year. These characters and this cast. You know, my own teenage daughter has discovered the show over the last year. And it truly stands up almost 30 years after the show's premiere. It's amazing. It's amazing. It appeals to, you know, when they get near teens, all of a sudden they're interested in this show. Mm -hmm. Six, you know, people that kind of. They, the, the teenagers might aspire to, but they capture you. They're good looking. And what the great thing about that is if you're good looking and you're also funny, yeah, it's so surprising. Yeah. The ones that you don't That's, expect to be funny are probably the most um, rewarding to see. Yes. Yeah. A surprise. Yeah. You don't expect it. Yeah. You know, all the three, the three guys on the Mary Tyler Moore show, Ed, Gavin, and Ted, were all heavies in the Untouchables and all those drama right, shows. Right, right, right. And all of a sudden, they cast them in these comedy roles. You know, remember Ed's surly look? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, yeah. he's always grumpy. Yeah. But he was funny. Yes, he was. <laughs> he was. He absolutely was. You directed every episode of Will and Grace. You didn't do that for every show. You did every single show here. At the, you know, Will and Grace came along in '98, and you know, I was, you know, I was kind of my career was, uh, I was just taking it easy, and then the show came along, and it made me laugh so hard. That I said to my wife, I have to continue on this show. It's adding years to my life. You remember Norman Cousins? Yeah. That book he wrote about laughter is the best medicine. Yep, absolutely. And how it helped him overcome a disease mm-hmm. by watching Marx Brothers tapes and stuff like that. Yep. That's what I felt like with this show. It really made me laugh. And you must see the impact of Will and Grace on television today, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely not politically relevant as it was before, but it sure had a, it had a powerful impact in the early 2000s. No question. You know, and over the years, you know, you say you've become, you know, over time, both an actor's director and a writer's director. Talk a little bit about that. 
in the sitcom business, uh, it's a writer's driven business. So uh, they write, you perform. I direct, they, the actors perform. So there's a there's a, a wall. We wrote this, you do it. There's a wall that I break down yeah. because I say to the actors, uh, okay, we got to do what the writers wrote because they worked hard on it. However, you got any ideas for other stuff? You got a funny business, you got a funny position, you can say this line in. So when the writer comes down to see his piece, we show it to him as written, and then we say, wait, we got got something here. Are you interested in this? Sometimes they'll say no, sometimes they'll say yes, but it's all about making the show better. The writers don't feel threatened at all. You know, they they expect, they you know, especially on a long-running show, Mm -hmm. they expect the actors to help them out a, a lot. And, you know, I break down those walls. Yeah, I mean, this book is great for any aspiring director, producer, and television uh, as well. And back in 2016, I mentioned this earlier, when NBC aired that all-star tribute to James Burroughs, I couldn't wait to see it because I knew this is this was like a this-is-your-life moment, a, a reunion of, of people in every show you created. That must have been overwhelming to see all these people in one room to celebrate your work. I was, I was so moved and so grateful to Sean for putting it together. I, and you know, to see uh, all those people in the same room and then to see the cast like from big bang. Yeah. Go over to the cheers cast. Yeah. You know, because they were raised on Cheers. Yeah. And then to see the Friends kids go over to the taxi people. Mm-hmm. That was that was amazing to me. I hope there was a big group picture that you have hanging somewhere. Oh, I don't know if there is. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, that, no, there's a picture in the, uh, in the book of me with the Friends kids. Saw that, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, I will tell you, such a great book, directed by James Burroughs. Five decades of stories from the legendary director of Taxi, Cheers, Frasier, Friends, Will, and Grace, and more. Pick up this book, folks. It is phenomenal. And you think about this, and this is just some of the highlights. Four episodes of the Mary Teller Moore Show, 11 episodes of the Bob Newhart Show, eight of Laverne and Shirley, 19 of Phyllis, 75 of Taxi, 243 of Cheers, 32 of Frasier, Friends, Mike and Molly, all 246 episodes of Will and Grace, 10 Emmy Awards, four Directors Guild of America Awards, and celebrated by the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. You are a true legend, Jim, and I'm so glad you shared your story in this book and spent some time with us. Well, I appreciate it a lot, and I hope to meet Jim Burroughs someday because I, <laughs> I want to congrats. No, I want to. I want to. I want to throw those accolades in his face. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Thank you again for your time, Jim. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. <laughs>
TV legend Jim Burroughs. All right, celebrating America's workers was rooted in the late 19th century when labor activists pushed for a federal holiday to recognize the many contributions workers have made to America's strength, prosperity, and well-being. When I think of America's workers, I think of my pal Mike Rowe and his foundation, Mike Rowe Works. He's the host of the rebooted Discovery Channel series, Dirty Jobs, host of the Story Behind the Story podcast, The Way I Heard It, voice of the deadliest catch, his mom, just released another book, Vacuuming in the Nude and Other Ways to Get Attention. He also hosts How America Works on the Fox Business Network. You know, Mike, get busy. What a slacker. <laughs> you know what we got here, David? We got ourselves the making of a tradition. Yes, it's it's been a tradition for that long. And it's a, it's a good thing because when I think about who stands up for America's workers and talks about work ethics and, and finding good jobs and skilled trade workers, it's Mike Rowe. Well, thanks. That's some pretty tall cotton. But, you know, for 20 years, I worked on dirty jobs. I'm still working on Mm -hmm. dirty jobs. And I I run a foundation that, as you say, really focuses primarily uh, on the worker. But we're living in a very different time. We're not really facing giant union issues or or, uh, work days or work weeks or so many of the the challenges that faced America's workforce a hundred years ago, they're, they've changed and they've evolved. And, and today, the reason my foundation actually launched, this is my birthday, by the way, MicroWorks started 14 years wow. ago on Labor Day. Man. And, and on this day, for me, the thing, the biggest crisis facing the American workforce is very, very different than it was over 100 years ago. Today, the country's looking at what appears to be a precipitous decline Mm -hmm. in work ethic. And what we try and celebrate at MicroWorks and what I try and talk about on this day uh, are ways to reinvigorate American work ethic, ways to encourage and inspire people who wish to learn a skill that doesn't require a four-year degree. That's what our scholarship program is about. And that's really where I'm coming from on Labor Day in 2022. We need to tap back into the work ethic that made the country special and unique. And I worry when I look around at the state of things today. Well, so many working from home, uh, many have proven and a high level of productivity as the work environment shifts. We all know that some people aren't diving in as much as they should. Elon Musk told employees to return to the office or pretend to work somewhere else. And I was taught early on to show up early, you know, stay late, prove yourself every day, prove your worth every day. And some, you know, work has become the enemy. I own a small business. I have 50 people, my business partner and I uh, have. And you know, they work very hard. And, you know, yeah, some people need their fires lit like in any company, but where does the American work ethic stand today? It's a great topic. Well, I mean, look, and if you Google the decline of American work ethic, you'll see more articles written in the last year than have been written in the last 15. It really and truly is a thing. It's not just about remote work, and it's not just about guys like Elon Musk saying what they say. Tim Cook, by the way, has asked Apple employees to do the same thing. And they're simply not doing it. They're simply saying, no, we, we don't wish to do that. And look, it's not about really picking a side. It pits 
your 50 employees against you and your partner. It presupposes that labor will always be the eternal adversary of management. But of course, that's not really how the country actually works. That's a very narrow way to look at all of this. Those, Those two things, labor and capital, labor and management, they're two sides of the same coin. And work ethic is every bit as important as the risk that you and your partner assumed when you started your business. And so the employee is, is, is not the enemy of the employer. No. Yeah, no. there's there's always going to be tension. But the thing that props them both up and the thing that anybody can share, regardless of party or class or race or anything else, is, as you said, an affirmative willingness to get up early, stay late, do the hard thing, and take a bite of the poop sandwich when it's your turn. You know, companies like Apple, Microsoft, and and others have told their employees that they are not going to work from home permanently, and they want them back in the office. And they've said no. No, they're not coming back at 100%. So who is working for who here? You know, and I know it was a different time, but back in the 80s, President Reagan told air traffic controllers, to come back to work, and they said no, and they were all fired. You also have to see the fact that that this there is a right to work. Every single air traffic controller in those days had maximum freedom. They had a complete and total choice to make. So too do travelers. So too does the government. And so it's not as if this whole business about working from home is good or bad or right or wrong. It's simply not the choice of the employee. It's just not. And we can yell and scream and pitch a fit about it, but look, for the rest of us, the signs are everywhere. How many restaurants have closed in the last year? Oh, yeah. Over 100,000. Yeah. All right? The ones that are still open, how many of your listeners, I, I know they've seen it, Please be patient. Yeah. We're dealing with a skeleton crew. Please yeah. be patient as yeah. we cook your food and attempt to serve you. Yeah. This is happening everywhere. And look, there are 11.5 million jobs right now, David, that are open. We've got 5.8 million people who are uh, unemployed and uh, purportedly looking for work. But even if all those people got hooked up, with some of the available jobs, you'd still be looking at millions and millions and millions of open opportunities. And that says something about our country that's not terribly flattering. And, you know, again, reasonable people can disagree as to why. Are the employers rapacious and greedy? Are the employees universally lazy? These are the arguments we hear. All they do is divide us more. Well, since, and I was we ought to say, be able to talk honestly. About yeah, and I want to say, like, you know, I'm not trying to get political about it, too. This isn't a Republican thing. It's not a Democratic thing. It's like a Democrat thing. It's it's a let's get back to the office and work and collaborate. Now, some companies can do it. Maybe there's some jobs that they can do that are at their desk, at their computer. They can do it anywhere. I get that. But, you know, I work in an environment that is also manufacturing. People actually have to be on machinery, and they have to collaborate with people in the office. And, and, and you know, we've been back in since may late may early june of 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 2020 because we have to otherwise we can't get our our products out there but you know you always put your money where your mouth is mike and and your uh, foundation and the scholarships you provided is part of your work ethic scholarship program which 
you know, focuses on financial assistance to getting people trained for those skills. Uh, aviation, technology, welding, plumbing, manufacturing, carpentry, construction, and and many more. There's not shop classes in most high schools anymore, but there are great paying jobs out there, and we need to be training people to fill those roles. Millions of them. We just gave away, uh, let's see, last week, $1.5 million in work ethic scholarships. Not one penny, not one penny went to people who want to pursue a four-year degree. I'm not opposed to four-year degrees. Me neither. But I'm looking around, and I'm watching what's happening with student loan forgiveness, which, by the way, is not forgiveness. It's simply a transfer. And and I'm I'm looking at where the real opportunities are. The the vast majority of those eleven and a half million open positions don't require a four year degree. They require training. And so to to get behind uh, that opportunity and to and to try and make a persuasive case. Look, your plumber is not working from home. Nope. Your electrician mm-hmm. is not going to solve your problem from home. The most essential part of our workforce will never work from home they will always be out there on the front line and again it's it's not pitting blue collar against white collar who cares about the color of collars anymore what we need to do is hook people up with the skills they need to avail themselves to the opportunities that are out there but without an underlying enthusiasm for work then we're just pushing the rock up the hill. We are talking to TV personality Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs, Deadliest Catch, and Mike Rowe Works.org. What can you say about the New York Times best seller list? My mom's book, <laughs> her third book, by the way, <laughs> Vacuuming in the Nude and Other Ways to Get Attention. I just got the list this morning. She's number 11. She made it again. <laughs> She's a hoot. And this is really important. Yeah. She's important. I mean, it's, being on that list is important to my mom. She's 84 years old, and she holds that list in, in the highest regard. Two minutes later, I got the book scan list. Now, the book scan list is the true list. Book scan tells you exactly how many copies of a book sold every single week. On that list, my mom is number two. She outsold every single person on the New York Times list. So every how, single one. So how do you explain that? Okay. How, do you, how do you explain the rankings issue when you know what's sell, selling and, and getting the book out there is, is what should be controlling that ranking, right? Well, I mean, yes and no. No, if you call the list Books We Love and Hope You Buy by the New York Times. Mm. But if you call the list the bestseller list, okay. then a reasonable person might assume that the books on this list are arranged in the order yeah. of the popularity in which they sold. But look, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to complain. My mom is thrilled <laughs> and she is, yeah. she is the best example of work ethic I can give you. Woman wrote every day for 60 years before she got published. I'm not complaining about her placement on the list. I'm complaining about the fact that it's one more thing. Best sellers? Change the name of your list. Yeah. Inflation reduction? Change the name of your bill. Pass whatever you want. Argue however you like. But if we don't do something about the language 
and the fact that it's being redefined right under our feet, we're just going to talk in circles for the rest of our lives. My mom has a friend who vacuums in the nude, and she does it whenever her husband's home because it gets his attention, and they usually wind up taking a shower together. Sorry, but that's, you know, when she told me that story, I laughed out loud, and I said, look, that's your cover. Because as a writer, as a woman who tried to get the attention of publishers for over 60 years, you understand what that means today. And look look more broadly. I mean, everybody with a Facebook page and Instagram, a Snapchat, TikTok, everybody with a radio show or a TV show. You and I, David, we spend most of our, our time trying to get the attention of our listeners and viewers and then trying to hold their attention Mm -hmm. with something that feels like meaningful entertainment or useful information, whatever it is. This is the time we're living in. So her third book is uh, the story of one writer's journey, an incredible woman who lived a long time. I mean, she's still out there, 84 years old, Mm -hmm. finally, a New York Times bestselling author. And she got there uh, by writing every single day. You talk about work ethic. That woman never left the house without a yellow legal pad and two number two pencils. She interviewed strangers. She wrote their stories. She pinned them to the refrigerator. My dad took them off the next day and read them out loud to total strangers for 60 years. Wow. That's how they lived. Mm-hmm. And now it, it's paid off. So, yeah, that's really my Labor Day story. Take a lesson from Peggy Rowe, my mother. She's hard-headed and stubborn and not really number 11. She's number one. <laughs> Vacuuming in the nude in other ways to get attention. All right, what else are you working? I mean, I, I, what else are you working on? Like, what new seasons are you are you in the midst of or ready to begin, Mike? Well, I'm super excited uh, about Dirty Jobs. Yeah. We've been on the air now 20 years. Yeah. We just finished the last season. That'll be on toward the end of the year. Look, it's just, again, I've said this to you before, but when the headlines catch up to the themes of a show and make it relevant in yeah. ways you never imagined, that's pretty cool. And Essential Work is headline news, and Dirty Jobs was the granddaddy of Essential Working shows, so that'll be back um, early next year, late December maybe. How America Works is Dirty Jobs Without a Host. I produce it, present it, and narrate it. That's on Fox Business. Story Behind the Story is a TV show based on my podcast, which is called The Way I Heard It. That's over on TVN every Saturday night. But most importantly, the foundation is 14 years old today. Yeah, and happy birthday. Congratulations. Thanks, man. Look, it means a lot because all those projects are fun to work on and they they keep me busy, but mostly they give me an excuse to talk about our scholarship program and help tell the stories of the 2,000 people who are now welders and steam fitters and pipe fitters and electricians and HVAC technicians. We need those people. My foundation exists to help them. And if any of your listeners want to apply for a work ethic scholarship, shameless plug, microworks.org. No question. Love how you give back every day. You do great work. And it's always a pleasure to tap your brain and spend some time with you. Thanks. And I and I do apologize for the frightening image of my mother vacuuming <laughs> naked, but it's she's on the cover of the book. <laughs> Clothes. Rest easy. It's, it's, it's not a pop-up. All right. It's a, it's a fun G-rated book. That's You'll love good. it. Sounds great. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Dave. Take care. All right, as we wrap up tonight's 2022 edition of my favorite conversations of the year, I look back to last spring when I only had a half-hour show at 9.30 after a Blackhawks game, and I asked Kevin Matthews and Jim Shorts to fill in for me, only to have Jimmy lament over the fact that he only had 20 minutes to do a show. It's one of my favorites. 
Come on, Uncle Jed, the party's starting. Hear that music? Hey, this is Fat Jack. And then you listen to Kevin here, baby. What are you, Goofy? <laughs> I love it, man. It's a short God show. Damn, this is Darnell, producer up in the WGM booth. Well, we know. Uh, stand yeah. by, Mike uh, number eight for you, Kev. <laughs> and Mike number three, stand by in three, two, ten. Can, do you know, even know how to count, Darnell? <laughs> hey, he's, three, it, two, one. Uh, play another jingle. Hey, Chicago, it's Kevin Matthews and me, Jim Shorts. Hi. We're on WGN for eight minutes. Yep. Eight minutes. This segment's eight minutes. Right. We're supposed to be on for four hours. Eight uh, yeah. minutes, well. segment one. What in the hell are we going to do in eight minutes? Uh, play another jingle? Uh, the hotline. We're going to get our asses in trouble. WGN. It's play time a jingle. for an eight-minute segment on WGN. Radio. Chicago. Here's another eight-minute segment. Well, what do you? This is okay. Hi, no, everybody. I'm Kev Matthews. He's Jim Shorts. Remember us? No, nobody remembers you. Yeah, they nobody do. remembers me, and we don't have enough time to tell everybody who we are because we've right. only got now seven minutes. Hey, come! Seven minutes is important. A waste of time. I mean, uh, seven minutes is a long time if you're yeah, if you're having you sex. Know, you fell through the ice and yeah. you're underwater. Seven minutes is a long time. Time, so I'll take it. Uh, good to be back. No, it is. I'm wondering how many people have no idea or don't have a clue to who you are, Jim Shorts, yeah. or me, Kevin Matthews, or Darnell that's up in the booth. I uh, would say a lot. No, nobody cares, and you don't have time. Uh, to look us up in Wikipedia right. either. So I'm going to sue. You know what? Yeah. I've decided right now because uh, we got one more segment to do and we've got, what, three minutes left and you had a in big this guest. segment. I'm going to sue. I was supposed to talk right. to Michael Jordan. I had Michael Jordan yep. on and then I had to call him and say, oh, WGN only, they bumped us, Mike. Uh, yeah. We got two <laughs> eight-minute segments. And Sorry. I don't know about you, but I haven't talked to Michael in a long time. And I could fill, you know, 16 right. minutes with Michael Jordan, well, maybe an yeah. hour, maybe an hour and a half. But here's, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sue this radio station. And I'm going to, uh, come Monday, you're going to hear from my attorney, John St. Clair, the owner of this station. John St. Clair, I'm going to sue you. And I'm going to sue you for death. Defecation. Defecation, John Sinclair. You're going down on Monday for wasting my time. Jim, what? Uh, play a, a jingle. Radio Chicago, WGN. Okay, defamation. Yeah. Uh, who cares? Well, there's a big I'm difference. I'm suing you, John Sinclair, <laughs> Kev. <laughs> Go ahead and finish yeah. out. Uh, we got three minutes here uh, before we got to take a break here on WGN. Mm. Don't don't be upset. Don't don't be upset here. I, I wrote some things we can talk about here uh, for the next uh, 
eight, nine, ten minutes, and then we've got to go. I had Michael Jordan. I know. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like to? Yeah. Hey, Mike, how you doing? And by the way, speaking of Michael Jordan, uh, man, there's so much I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk to Mike. Mike, question: Is is, is, is Scotty Pippen really the biggest jackass? Yeah. In the on the face of the earth, he would. When I saw the uh, last dance with Michael Jordan, that was spectacular. Oh, it was great. It reminded me. I'd forgotten what a jackass Scotty was mm-hmm. and is today. Yeah. And then what a Jerry Krause. Yeah. We used to have Jerry on all the time, and yeah. I, for some reason Jerry. You know the guys that have a stomach, and then they got a stomach under the stomach, and then a stomach under the under the under the stomach. And yeah. I say to myself, "How do you go to the bathroom?" I always wanted to. When I saw Jerry Krause, I, I was saying that to myself, and then I wanted to ask Michael yeah. about. Did you ever see Jerry go to the bathroom? That would be a good question. Yeah. Uh, yes, I would like to know. Did you ever see that happen? <laughs> Just because of Jerry's Jerry anatomy. going to the bathroom. That's a good question to ask Michael Jordan. <laughs> All right. There you, you know, we used to talk about that on the radio. And for those who don't have a clue and who we um, are. want us off the air right now, we're going to be off real soon. Uh, we used to be on the loop. Right. And then after the loop, I did some time over at ABC and then got fired. Uh, from ABC, uh, yep, Zamira, he He's hated us. Jackass. And then we went over to uh, CBS. Yeah. And then uh, we got ran out of town. But yeah. um, I, you bring up a good point. Uh, we still got a little time. What's Name somebody that you've gone to the bathroom. Have you ever gone into a public bathroom? Yeah. And have you ever gone, who's stood next to you? Or who have you seen in a public bathroom? Jim, has that ever happened? To you? Uh, yeah, and, and I'll Ooh. tell you. But we gotta we gotta take a break here soon. Our show's almost over. But <laughs> right. uh, the most famous when we were working on the loop, AM one thousand in the Hancock Building. Yeah, I used to go and uh, I uh, I saw Peggy Kaczynski. Because uh, I used to go into the ladies' bathroom over at AM1000 because it was much cleaner. Uh-huh. And uh, so I was in a stall, and then uh, I heard Peggy. Uh, so my my famous person mm-hmm. was Peggy Kaczynski in the Hancock building when we worked wow. on AM1000. Who's the most famous yeah. A celebrity you ever saw in a bathroom, Kev? Uh, well, I was. We had golf outings. Right. Uh, Jim yeah. and I hosted golf outings in Chicago. Uh, we got kicked out of ten courses in ten years. Yep. Uh, we came to Chicago in 1986, and uh, we were ran out of town in 2005. And then during that time, I would do golf outings to help kids. Right. And we got kicked out of 10 golf courses in 10 years. And one time uh, we were getting ready for dinner after golf. I was in a locker room and I saw Chet Kopik, uh, the sportscaster Chet Kopik, and I saw Mike Ditka, Coach Mike Ditka. They were both, uh, they had uh, taken a shower. Yeah. They were getting ready for dinner and I saw their butts. And. Really, that I, I I'm never gonna forget that. I uh, so my uh, famous it's two Jim. You had 
Peggy Kaczynski. I had uh, the coach. Yeah. And our late friend Chet. Coppic. I miss Chet Coppic. Oh, we yeah. lost him to a car accident. Yeah. A lot of folks have passed away, and I wanted to say my condolences to Les Grobstein. Oh, God, yeah. Chet Les. and Les. You know, now I'm thinking of Chet's butt, and he did have a big ass. Oh, yeah, it was gigantic. He had a, you know, who the biggest ass I ever saw was Richard Dent's ass. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, Darnell is saying that we yeah. can answer some text messages. Uh, people are writing, and a, they want to uh, ask yeah. us I questions. I think we have time. We, we're running out of time. Mm-hmm. We've got to take a break, and we'll be back for with one more eight-minute yeah. segment Ooh. Uh, to answer <laughs> We don't have to. What are we doing? Taking um, a break. Yeah, break. we're uh, 720 WGN Radio. WGN. Yeah, what do you want, Tommy? Are you getting any? <laughs> Maniac. What'd you bring in, Gary? I, it's a. Uh... <laughs> It looks like a salami, doesn't it, Harry? Yeah. Those are custom condoms. <laughs> oh, boy, it's a big tubular package. Oh, wait, that's Clef's. Don't open that. <laughs> oh, that's, man, that's right. That's, oh, it is. Look, it's hamsters are running out of Oh, there. my God. It's a tube full of hamsters. Oh, right. be careful. Oh, get, out of here. get it out of here. Here's a hamster uh, racing. Get it. Get it. It's running loose in the There's studio. another one. Get Look it. out, Laura. Holy Jesus. Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! I got on my shoe! Jesus! There's one on your back, Harry! Ah! (laughs) Get it off! Kill it! God, Harry! Harry, it's running up your pat leg! Oh, they must be trained hamsters. Yeah, let me wiggle the <laughs> There's one more. It's loose. Oh, there it goes. Harry, there's still one up your pants. It's, it's dead. Stuck. It's dead. <laughs> did Harbaugh, when he threw that interception, did you think, uh-oh, here we go again? I'm going to say one thing to you people. What's that? We average how many plays a game on offense? 6,040. Would you guess? 64 to 65. 70. We played how many games? Six? What's that come out to be? Uh, 400? Mm-hmm. 399 of the plays I've been calm and one I've been excited. Yet you son of a bitch made a big deal out of it. What? That's life. Picky bad. Remember that. One out of 400. I got excited this whole year. One. So as long as you remember that, don't ever ask me another question like that about those things. Because I won't answer it when I walk out of here. You want to talk about football, fine. You don't, then you go somewhere else. The cookie, delirious, and hookie, they're all together. Goofy, the Jim Trump's family, they need a mausoleum. So all the kid can see them, you know they're off the deep end. The Jim Trump's family. Boom, boom. Dad. Hello. Hello. Hi, Dad. Hi. What's wrong? Oh, I just had an awful thing happen to me. What happened? I, I went down to the store this morning, and, and a bunch of kids, they took my pants down, and they taunted me. They laughed at what? me. What? Whoa. Ah! What happened to you? Hello? Hi, man. You making a promo? Yeah. Brent Miller wants me to cut some uh, some promos for kids' radio on GN, but don't tell Jack Silver I get in trouble. Oh, let me hear. Now, this is over at GN. They got kids' radio over there now, but uh, Brent oh. wants me to do the promos. Let me hear. Hang on a second. Don't tell Silver I get in trouble. 
Oh, who cares? This weekend, it's Kids Radio on a whole new frequency. Following Orion Samuelson's farm report, WGN rocks hard with a salute to Megadeth. It's an ear-bleeding, gut-wrenching thrash assault. Telling you, GN's changing, man. Kids Radio. <laughs> Tell your parents to go to hell, because we're going to kick some ass. Megadeth following Spike Odell. <laughs> Saturday, Halloween night. We're going to bump some wattage into your pumpkins on your kick-ass station, GN. It's what I did, there's one. That's good, oh, man. That's that hard battle stuff. Again. Right. Here's young Kevin Matthews. Kevin loves to play baseball with his father. Father throws the baseball. Good catch, Kevin. He caught it. Now it's Kevin's turn to throw the baseball to Dad. Whoops. It's a one-hopper. Hitting Dad right in the balls. That hurts. Hey, sports fans, Jimmy Shorts here with Mr. Baseball. Harry? Hello again, everybody. Tell everyone. We're going to what? What's your favorite memory in the broadcast both? Oh, brother. <laughs> there's so many, you know. It'd probably be at the one time, a long doubleheader at Sportsman's Park as the Cardinals and the Brooklyn Dodgers are playing. And I had quite a bit of a beer. <laughs> and, uh, of course, in a long inning, I couldn't excuse myself. Thank God for those wide-necked bottles. <laughs> Thank you. Harry, and thank you. You're welcome. Shemp right now is outside the studios of WGN. Yes, the Showcase Studios on Michigan Avenue, and they are broadcasting live in there. Radio Chicago, WGN. Hey, now. Yeah, it's uh, Kevin Matthews. I'm Jimmy Shores. From the WGN show studios, we've got one more eight-minute segment, and then we're out of here. We were supposed to do a four-hour show, and I'm suing John Sinclair and WGN Radio on Monday for um, a defamation of character. There you go. That's uh, good. Uh, We need more lawsuits. You've become a Jesus freak now. Oh, God. Are you you one of those guys that are, like, down in Arkansas that are in these little white churches (laughs) that drink turpentine and they hold Uh rattlesnakes? And the rattlesnakes bite, but right. they don't kill the uh, preacher yeah, man. that's what I do. You're turning into one of them, ain't you, Kev? Yeah, one of them. You're turning into uh, one of them. Those guys are wicked. Yep. They're um, idiots. Here, I've got a text message. During the break, we got text messages. Uh, and we have got, what, uh, we're out of here in about five minutes. Yeah, a little bit. So we'll answer as many as we can. This one comes from Sandwich, Illinois. I used to uh, bass fish out there. Who cares? Uh, in uh, in Sandwich. Kev, are you ever going to be inducted into the Radio oh. Hall of Fame? Jim, I'll let you answer uh, that. The answer is N. Oh, no. We're no. never going to get in because it's turned political and oh, no. we're never going to get in. Brand Meyer's in and yeah. Steve uh, Dahl and Gary Meyer. Us? No, 
we are no, we we're not going to get in because it's all political, and nobody listens uh, to radio anymore. Uh, 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 except WGN, yeah. I take that back. But you know, if we were on, we had a longer show. People right. might, you know, put us in the radio hall of fame. But we've only got six minutes left here at WGN, and I know a mm. lot of people are saying, "Well, that's six minutes too much." Uh, yeah, uh, this uh, text message comes from. Benton Harbor, Michigan. We are coming into Chicago. Can you recommend the best deep dish pizza? Oh, God. Jim? Uh, please. You don't like deep you know, dish? If, if, if you're coming from out of town, you're coming into <laughs> Chicago, uh, stop with the deep dish pizzas. Why? I, I'm, to me, deep dish pizzas are so overrated. And every time I ate a deep dish pizza, I always... I'm going to choke to death because yeah. it's like, you know, the whole stuff, big, deep dish pizza is overrated. So when, who, who, you want the, the best bad? pizza yeah. in Chicagoland Ooh. area, we still say Lito's mm -hmm. Pizza out in countryside. That is great. You get an order of pepperoni, mushrooms, cheese, and make yeah. it a double order of cheese. Lito's Pizza, best damn pizza. That's a good one. In uh, Chicagoland. Uh, Jim, a text message coming to us from Oak Brook Hills writes We got kicked out of that course. How do you course. think the Chicago Bears are going to do this year with a whole new coaching staff? Plus, right. Jim, this person's a big fan of your animation yep. and your pigskin picks that you and. Uh, Dan Vick and Larry Wirt do during football season. Uh, I'm so glad they got rid of Nagy. They should have cleaned house, I said, five years he ago. He was the worst. I think Justin Fields, mm -hmm. mentally Nagy, and his stupid coaches got mentally into his head. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be a wash. I for the Bears. I'm wondering if, if, if the Bears are even going to make it to the playoffs. I, I really do. I, I hope the coaching staff, I don't think they went deep enough. They mm -hmm. need, still need to fire people in the front office. Yeah. Uh, you can follow me and uh, my animation pigskin pics on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Jim Shorts. So the answer to your question right now, I, I, I don't think. Not looking good? I think there's a problem there. I, I think there's a problem. Uh, uh, Lake Forest, uh, we have a problem. Uh, Jim, you did have a great year. He's uh, You predicted 12. Oh, last year, yeah. You were 12-4 and four in yeah. picking last year's the regular re during regular yeah. season. And then you also picked, way before the playoffs, you picked Cincinnati and the Rams. Right. To be in the Super Bowl, and you also picked uh, Cincinnati, and you took Cincinnati in the points, right? And that won people money. You uh, you nailed it. Well, that's what I do. I own a. Uh, for those who want to know, you can come up to Beaver Island. I own a casino, a nice one, on a uh, reservation, and yeah. uh, you come up, rent a double wide trailer. I uh, mm -hmm. tell you, we uh, honeymoon suites. Yeah. Uh, we don't allow kids on the island. Okay, no, no, no kids. Keep them leashed up at home. Okay. Uh, but come and see us on Beaver Island. Uh, it's a new way to bet sports. Ah, uh, Kev, it's me, Darnell, up in the booth. We yeah. got to be out of here real soon. Oh, I'll watch God. your clock. Uh, you have a text message. Please read it. Uh, okay, thank you, uh, uh, Darnell. 
the text message reads, uh, Kev, I read your article that was in the Chicago Tribune about two months ago, written by Rick Kogan. Thank you, Rick. Is a That was a really nice article. Yeah, Thank it you, was. Rick. It was nice. Um, how do I get in uh, to the elevator and tell everybody what the elevator is? Yeah, what, is what the hell is Elevator or Go-Go? Uh, ElevatorogoGo.com. You can read all about us and see what we do. We're a platform that... It's a new way to discover new music, and it's our platform. We take musicians and capture them live, and then uh, it's shot all over the uh, social media, and it's getting musicians a lot of attention. So if you want attention, you want record labels to look at you or just increase your fan base, go to elevatorogogo.com, and you can... Uh, Tell us, and we'll reach out, and you come on over to Grand Rapids, Michigan. It reminds me of Tiny Desk, if you're a fan on PBS, Tiny Desk, or Jam in the Van. It's facilities that capture live performances and then use social media to highlight these musicians. So if uh, you're in a band, uh, go to elevatorogogo.com. And Jim, I think we're out of time. Yeah, we're out of time, Kev. Darn uh, it. I, uh, yep. Hey, it's been fun. Yeah. The 16 minutes has been real. Thank yeah. you for... Flew by. I blew off Michael Jordan. Thank you, WGN. <laughs> and Kev, eat me and uh -huh. bye -bye. leave us alone. <laughs> okay, we're done. Yeah, bye-bye. Time to go. And uh, we, well, we were going to have Michael Jordan on, but okay. we got, he, sorry, Mike. Canceled. And we also, Kev was going to talk to Taylor Sheridan. I know. Uh, the guy that created Yellowstone, yeah. but we ran out of yeah, time. And did. also, we were going to make fun of Billy Corgan because oh, yeah, he, he hates us. Yeah, he hates us a lot. So, bye-bye. Bye, everybody. We're yeah, we're done. Out of here. Unplug us. All right. Thank you for joining us for part one of my favorite conversations of the year. We'll continue tomorrow just after midnight after we bring in the new year. Have a great night, everybody. Top stories from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom are next here on 720 WGN. All right. Happy New Year to all of you. It's Dave Player ringing in 2023 with you right here on 720 WGN. Now, tonight we're going to continue with my favorite conversations of the year, with the first hour celebrating the golden age of rock radio in Chicago. And the second hour, we'll spend some time with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Justin Hayward of legendary English rock band, the Moody Blues. First up are highlights from a Museum of Broadcast Communications event called Rock Radio Revisited. Former rock jock and WGN Radio's Wendy Snyder steers this trip down memory lane as Chicago radio greats John Records Landecker, Tommy Edwards, and Bob Stroud, as well as Deanna Williams, legendary rock radio personality from New York City and our nation's capital, come together to reminisce about the golden age of rock radio, along with the stories, the DJs, the fans, the gimmicks, vintage air checks, and more. Let's turn up the sound for Rock Radio Revisited. From Chicago, I am John Landecker, and Records truly is my little name. Don't be nervous, don't be rocky, you're a teenage guest is jockey now. WLSELO and Living Thing from New World Record with John Records Landecker chances to win tonight. Listen for the music radio touch tone at WLS. It's not a normal job, it is not a 9 to 5 job. By participating playback store. I like that. I don't think I could work a 9 to 5 job. This is Larry Lujak. Animal Stories is more than just a feature on my morning WLS radio program. It's a serious responsibility. Well, here's a tragic uh, story to kind of close out the show this morning. A letter that we have received 
from little girl in Palatine uh -huh. who writes, Dear Uncle Lair and Lil Tommy, you are my last, my last hope. <laughs> last night, my $400 parrot went for a fly, <laughs> and I haven't seen him since. Oh, no, really? So February 10th of 1978, I was the music director at a Sarasota, Florida FM rock station. I remember dropping the needle down on the debut album from this new band. They were called Van Halen. And yes, the first song on the first side, Running With The Devil. Wow. Right in your face, sounding great. What an awesome kick-ass band. And I really liked the way the guitar had been recorded. La música de Carlos Santana, Evil Ways, Fleetwood Mac, Don't Stop, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Ebony Moonbeam's here with you in the evening, Deanna Williams. Like to extend a very mellow vibe to everybody. Let's begin with you, John Landecker. Um, we, we talk about formats a lot, make it fast, play specific songs, new ones, old ones at specific times. You have to read the commercial because the advertiser is paying for you to read it. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say by, about that? Well, that's where you have all your fun, is <laughs> violating all those rules. <laughs> Well, you certainly did. Well, not really. I mean, you know, that's an over-exaggeration. We, uh, not just myself, but uh, Tommy and everybody that was on the air at that time, we nudged the rules. We didn't actually break them. Yeah. Yeah. Tommy, I feel free to jump in. We can I'm talk a, amongst all I, of our I, You know, I wasn't a delinquent. You know no, what I mean? No, 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 no. But you know what? As a listener, you sure sounded like one. Well, and that's, that made you sound cool, though. It sounded like, you know, screw authority. I'm going to do what well, I want. Yeah, there was a little bit of that. Yeah. Can I give you an example of how we broke the rules a little bit, but just kind of nudged them a little bit? When John did uh, Boogie Check, management came to us and said, we really like that, but we want it to be like 90 seconds to two minutes, no more than that. And so we came up with a closing, and I bet you all remember Fred Winston saying, Stop it! Stop it! Stop this boogie check! Okay. So the way, the way we did that was we put two minutes of silence on a cart, so the engineer would hit that cart for two minutes, right? I mean, it yeah. would just run for two minutes. Right. And then at two minutes, Fred's voice would come in and stop boogie check. Well, after a while... John forgot to cue the engineer to start the two-minute tape, okay? So it got to be like three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, and eventually Fred would come on and stop boogie check. Isn't that right? That is very true. Yeah. Yes. And the statute of limitations has run out. <laughs> yeah, John's here. No, he's not going to do anything. He's not going to bother you. All right, Stroud, what about you? Um, you... I was just talking to uh, my sons yesterday about how you could take the format of radio and turn it, be so personable within that format. It was, it, it's hard staying tight, bright, and light, isn't it? 
I, I think for me, I just drew on my love and my passion for both music and radio and just got on the radio and did just that. Uh, I didn't have a shtick, per se, uh, like so many did. I, I have a comfort zone that's hard for me to get out of, and that's just being me. Uh, so I was just able to take my love for both of those mediums, radio and music, and luckily make a career out of it, if that means yeah. anything. All right, um, let's talk about why you thought, why do you think Top 40 Radio works, John Landecker? Well, I think you have to go back to the era in which it was big, and in that era there were minimal choices for, say, a teenager to access Top 40 or rock music. FM hadn't made inroads yet, so in Chicago, there was either WLS and WCFL that made for competition. Uh, the better the competition, the better it was for the listener because it forced people at both stations to come up with ideas, have more fun, hire the right personalities, and that was executed on the air, and there was an excitement to it. You know, there was, uh, it wasn't just the music, it wasn't just the personalities, it was a bit of everything. And it was at the right time and the right place for the right listeners. And now, hey, I mean, classic rock, let's see, light rock, um, stagnant rock, I mean, it's just, there's endless slices of the pie, but not then. All right, you are listening to excerpts of the Museum of Broadcast Communications' recent event, Rock Radio Revisited, with John Records, Landecker, Tommy Edwards, Bob Stroud, Deanna Williams, and our own Wendy Snyder. And there's more after this on 720 WGN. You're listening to excerpts from the Museum of Broadcast Communications' recent event, Rock Radio Revisited, with John Records, Landecker, Tommy Edwards, Bob Stroud, Deanna Williams, and Wendy Snyder. John Records, Landecker talks about a bit he put together for his listeners. In case people don't know, um, there was an era in the United States when it was okay to make fun of the president. (laughs) And uh, the president at the time was Nixon, and the event that was going on was Watergate. And I came up with the idea for a song called Make a Date to the Watergate, which was done to Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side, which is a song that WLS wasn't even playing. But I can't see who's out there in the audience, but... That track was put together because of a production engineer named Alan Rosen. He's here. He's here. He's I someplace. can't see. I can't see <laughs> And it's not because of my age. It's because the lights are off. So anyway, <laughs> if, you li- if you play enough of it, you'll hear a loop, okay? Allie took what, uh, uh, Walk on the Wild Side and cut- we cut it along a bass line so that when... I came back to the chorus of who was ever going to say do, to do, to do, to do, to do, it matched. So Allie's and Tommy were the production people. I just had the idea. Good evening, my fellow Americans. At our convention, Miami FLA, a campaign across the USA. Let me make this perfectly clear. Let me stick it in your ear. They said, hey, babe, make a date with the Watergate. My fellow Americans, I said, hey, honey, make a date with the Watergate. And Martha Mitchell says, do, 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 do. Thanks. 
I got a little story that I think you'll find amusing. Uh, so that went on the air and it became very popular. And WLS at the time was owned by ABC. And ABC also had a television station that was up for renewal in Florida. And ABC executives in New York felt that if the Nixon administration found out about this song on one of their ABC-owned radio stations, they would interfere with the license of the renewal of the TV station in Florida. So management yanked it. Then Nixon resigned. Then the song came back on. <laughs> and it was very popular. And the station said, let's press 10,045 RPM records, which they did. And I'll never forget it, the thrill of opening up a box, holding up a 45 RPM record, make a date with the Watergate, recorded by John Records Loudecker. <laughs> Bummer. Oh yeah. This is what it's like in the big time. They had misspelled my last name. So thousands of tiny little stickers were made and people were like, eh, eh, eh. So there you go. From the highs to the lows. That's the way it works. <laughs> All right, we're going to continue with John Records Landecker, and then we're going to go back to Tommy. And then we'll talk to Deanna. And when and you Bob go to Bob well. the next time, could you call him Bob and just instead of Stroud? Hey, Stroud. Hey, what's Stroud. going on? I don't, I, I know. go back and forth with calling you Stroud and Bob. No, I just mean it's part of being friends, and that's hey, all. At least you're not calling me Surratt, which most people do. <laughs> Bob Surratt, I've been listening to you forever. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, so make a date with Watergate, and please let's talk. Um, remember this. Let's play this clip of Boogie Check, Boogie Check, ooh, ah. Once again, the boy in the box to his eye searches for that ledge tuberous phone call. Who is you? Good evening. Saying good evening, Negatory Big Ben, over. WLS Boogie Check. Yeah, what's your favorite sport? My fa I don't have any favorite sport. How about baseball? Baseball, lovely sport. WLS Boogie Check. Hey, John, this is Yogi saying goodbye to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, creativity. Creat I got creativity on my radio. Yeah. Wait a minute. That was the closing, yeah. Okay, I will admit I have stolen from you, John Records Landecker. When I worked late nights on the Loop Radio, we did boogie check. Really? We just called it unscreened phone calls, because that's, that's really all it was. That is really all it was, yeah. It was so exciting. I loved that. Um, Boogie check, boogie check, ooh, ah, the, the open. That came um, after boogie check had been on for a while. It was very popular. Uh, and one of the things we always did at WLS, not just me, but Bob and Tommy, we would make appearances at high schools for whatever reason. Um, and I'll never forget, it was the Team of the Week Award to Addison Trail High School. And I always carried a tape recorder with me, and I had to walk in from the gymnasium entrance to a podium that was in the middle of the gym. And as I walked in, this spontaneous cheer erupted, boogie check, boogie check, ooh, ah, boogie check. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? This is fantastic. So I got him to shut up 
start the tape recorder and do it again. But I had nothing to do with that. Well, it was fantastic. Um, legendary. I'm sitting up here with legends today. Are you loving this? How about it? I want to get back to Tommy Edwards now. Um, I worked at Brookfield Zoo, and I worked on the uh, authentic steam engine train, and I was a tour guide. And Jimmy worked in the roundhouse, and he had animal stories blasting every morning. Every morning. And I wanted to talk to you because you just never knew where someone was listening to you, and you guys were rocking Brookfield Zoo, which is appropriate for animal stories. Yeah, I've heard, since, since that time, I've heard from people who said, I grew up listening to you on the school bus because the driver would have animal stories on. And there was a time when there were companies on the south side and over in Indiana that called the management of the radio station demanding that animal stories be moved from 9.45 a.m. and played earlier in the hour because their employees were still out in the car listening to animal stories and not showing up for work on time. And we politely said, or at least management said, that they had called and they said, look, we really appreciate what you're saying here, but we're gonna keep playing it at 9.45. And you recall, Larry recorded, we recorded it and Larry played it back at 6.45 the next business day. But um, animal stories, and there's one other thing that I wanted to mention when I heard that uh, kid from Tennessee. I talked to the promotion director back in those days. His name is G. Michael Donovan. Yeah. And I, uh, I called him the other day. He's living out in the desert in California, and he's, he's wonderful. He's playing tennis every day, and he's happy as can be. Anyway, so I told him I was coming here, and I said, you know, help me remember some of the craziness that was going on at WLS. And we were both saying there was so much creativity, there was so much just outrageous behavior, but it was all within the boundary of good fun. He said that, he had an office that overlooked Michigan Avenue, and Fred Winston came in, and he had a bullhorn there. <laughs> you know what this is. And then Fred would go over and open up the window overlooking Michigan Avenue with the bullhorn and say, attention, attention citizens, the danger is over. You can now return to your homes. <laughs> and then he'd shut the window. But. The, regarding the power of the radio station, Donovan told me there was a time when a small high school down in Alabama, I think it was, or Georgia or Arkansas, sent pictures of the senior class to the radio station and asked us to pick the king and queen of the homecoming <laughs> festivities. And so Donovan said that he had a good time doing that. But uh, you know, he said, I think it's uh, the third guy on the right, uh, you know, and there's a girl over here and all this stuff. And so he sent it back. But he says, do you realize the power of that radio station? You're listening to the Museum of Broadcast Communications' recent event, Rock Radio Revisited, with John Records Landecker, Tommy Edwards, Bob Stroud, Deanna Williams, and Wendy Snyder. And there's more after this here on 720 WGN. You're listening to the Museum of Broadcast Communications' recent event, Rock Radio Revisited, with John Records Landecker, Tommy Edwards, Bob Stroud, Deanna Williams, and hosted by Wendy Snyder. Here's a classic animal story with Uncle Lair. And little snot-nosed Tommy. Well, here's a tragic uh, story to kind of close out the show this morning. Letter that we have received from little girl in Palatine uh -huh. who writes, Dear Uncle Lair and little Tommy, 
you are my last, my last hope. <laughs> last night, my $400 parrot went for a fly, <laughs> and I haven't seen him since. Oh, no, really? Please help me get him back. I'm offering a $75 reward if someone captures him, and $20 for a sighting. What's its name? Doesn't say. Says he's mostly green, about 10 inches high, with yellow around his eyes. He was lost on Juniper Drive between Hicks and Rowling Roads in Palatine. Please see what you can do. Maybe if you ask people to watch out for him, someone will care enough to call me. Now, normally, we don't deal with lost pets, and we're not going to anymore <laughs> after this. I mean, in a city this size, you know, there's in excess of seven million people in the metropolitan area, little Tommy. Probably an equal number of pets. We haven't got time to uh, mess with lost pets because there's so. So why are we doing this one? Oh, I felt sorry for the little girl. And besides, uh, it's not every day that a bird this valuable is lost. I mean, a four hundred dollar parrot. Oh yeah. Frankly, I feel anyone who is foolish enough to spend four hundred dollars <laughs> on a parrot deserves what they get. But. That's uh, maybe it's uh, maybe it's uh, mingling with something. Maybe it a could crow have, or something. Might have been why it uh, went out for a fly and escaped, little Tommy. Uh, a lot of action there in Palatine. Uh, out, of, <laughs> out of sexual frustration. This is uh, the last time we're going to do a lost pet because we don't have time to be reading lost dogs and cats all the time. Yeah. She says she called the Palatine police, but they're no help. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's the trouble with the police. You know, when something really important comes along like this, they're always busy uh, dealing with uh, trivial stuff like rapes and murders and drug pushers. Got no time for $400 parrots. Yeah. Uh, they're never around when you need them. Well, what are they supposed to do? If somebody sees this parrot, what are they supposed to do? Uh, they should call you at home, <laughs> <laughs> little Tommy, and I'll give you this girl's uh, address and her number here. No, he's... Anybody out there in Valentine sees this here $400 parrot, right, call us here at the station and we'll pass the information along. <laughs> oh, round of applause. Bringing back the memories, that is for sure. Awesome. All right, uh, we have a couple more questions. Deanna, we're going to go to you. Do you have a behind the scenes or behind the mic story to share with us? I've worked with so many incredible people. And if I go back now to my rock days, my program director was a gentleman named Phil DeMarne, who I have been looking for ever since. Because I want to thank him for giving me an opportunity as a black woman to do a genre typically where you didn't hear black men or women playing rock music. And I had just left New York. I had been working in New York with Frankie Crocker, who's a legendary program director in black radio. He's no longer physically with us. But I had worked at WBLS 107.5 in New York. So Phil knew that, and he was like, if you can do New York radio, you can do rock radio. You can come to Washington, D.C., and you can execute this format. And I'm grateful to him forever for having trust and belief in me as a broadcaster. He gave me tremendous confidence as a radio personality, because he was right. If you are truly uh, committed to music and community, which I still am, it doesn't matter what the format is. You can execute it. And Wendy, we, we're doing talk. I'm currently doing talk radio now, which is a departure from 
music, right. which is what I've done the majority of my career. But I'm grateful to every production uh, director, imaging directors, you know, uh, you know, we were talking about how you met your wife. Your wife was a receptionist. Uh, and she told me, too, that when she first saw you, that you were not so polite. Um, but look, oh, all these many years later, and, th <laughs> and three children, um, you know, you managed to survive. Okay, she said okay, you were okay, a bit okay. of a, well, she didn't say it, but I'll say it, a bit of a <laughs> um, <laughs> Right, Marilyn? A little bit. He was a little rude. But that rudeness turned into love and family and uh, eternal friendship. So yeah, I've worked with great people. And, and my recollection when I first started working at WMAL, it was an ABC-owned and operated station. So for me, I was very honored that I was working at a network-affiliated station. And that was big. And then the people that I work with, they knew that I didn't know. But they worked with me, and they supported me, and eventually, you know, I became one of the, the, the jewels and the crown of WMAL because I put my heart, my soul, everything into playing the music, sharing stories, and think about it, why you're here today. You know, we become, your, we become part of your family. You hear our voice. We're, we're talking to you. We're giving you information. We're talking about the artists. So-and-so is coming to town. Oh, by the way, it's going to rain today, so make sure that you, know, you take your raincoat and your umbrella. We, we become such an integral part of people's lives. And so, I mean, I know I'm all over the place, but I, I've loved, with the exception of maybe a few people that I have worked with in my entire <laughs> radio career, and they know who they are. <laughs> But I have love and affection for, first of all, radio, and then the, the community, the audience, the people. Even to this day, I'll be in the supermarket minding my business, running in to get something quick, and people will stop me and say, oh, I've loved listening to you on the radio. And, and how about the ones that say, I, like, what happened to you, Wendy? I grew up listening yeah. to you, or I, you know, like what you were saying earlier. We're part of people's lives, and what an honor, what a, what a distinct honor and privilege it is to be behind that mic playing music so for true. the people. I'm telling you, you are a ray of sunshine, Deanna. You really are. It is such a pleasure to meet you. Bob Stroud, I'll go to you. Do you have a behind-the-scenes <clears throat> moment or a behind-the-scenes, a behind-the-mic moment you'd like to share? Well, let me just say that in the 80s, I worked at The Loop with Steve and Gary and Johnny and Kevin, Danny Bonaducci. So behind the scenes, <laughs> yeah, there's a few of those. I would think most of those, though, uh, came out in front of the curtain within time. There was hardly anything that was kept behind the scenes back in that era because that's what that radio was all about at the loop was everything is out there for you to hear all of the wildness and the sickness that's going on here we're going to let you hear it so there wasn't too much going on behind the scenes there um boy I, it was really dysfunctional at the loop wasn't it a it dysfunctional very, family <laughs> it was very dysfunctional and i think that's what made it so successful is people love listening on somebody else's dysfunctionality and not their own um 
When I, when I first got to Chicago in 79, I, I wasn't hired as a jock. I was hired as the production director at WMET, which was news to me because I barely made a commercial at the radio station I worked at in Florida, and this is how I got the job, and I pretty much kind of learned on the job. They were so desperate to have a production director at WMET. Yeah, we'll take this guy. He's made two spots. Hire him. So... Um, one of my earliest joys of being in the business was getting caught up in something that we don't really have anymore in this business, and that is radio wars. I know there were radio wars back in the 60s between LS and CFL, and probably into the early 70s as well between those two AM giants. Back when I got to Chicago in the late 70s and early 80s, we had a huge radio war between WMET and The Loop and we were constantly trying to one-up each other. Well, I think it was the winter of 81, the loop went on the air with something they called loop songs. Does anybody remember that? Does that sound familiar? Basically what it was is they would play a montage of songs, seven of them, and they were about a second long. So you heard boop, 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 and if you could identify those seven songs, you would win $500,000 if you were caller 10 or whatever it was. They were going to stretch this thing out over the winter book. So it was going to be 12 weeks of this. They were going to give away $500,000 in this Loop Songs contest. And we at MET thought, how can we destroy this? I know we can identify the songs and go on the air and give the audience the answers <laughs> so that this 12-week promotion lasted about three. And it was my job to sit in the production studio and figure out what those songs were. And then we'd go on the air and say, hey, you know, there's songs on the radio these days that a lot of people are really interested in and would really like to hear a lot of. Here's one of those songs. Next hour, here's another one of those songs. Next hour, here's another one of those songs. And then we'd tune over to the loop to find out how they were reacting to it on the air. And once we got to Loop Songs 3 and we had given away the answer to all seven songs, Mitch Michaels said, we're going to play loop songs in about five minutes, and I got a feeling we're going to get a winner this time. <laughs> so I, I took great pride in blowing up that half-million-dollar promotion at the loop. Way to go, Bob Stroud. Radio Wars, there was nothing like it. You're listening to the Museum of Broadcast Communications' recent event, Rock Radio Revisited, with John Records, Landecker, Tommy Edwards, Bob Stroud, Deanna Williams, and hosted by Wendy Snyder. And there's more after this on 720 WGN. All right, Saturday, it's National Radio Day, and you're listening to the Museum of Broadcast Communications event, Rock Radio Revisited, with John Records, Landecker, Tommy Edwards, Bob Stroud, Deanna Williams, and hosted by Wendy Snyder. I was off stage and asked John Landecker to tell the story about when actor John Travolta came to town. So, in the 70s, as we all know, WLS played the hits. John Travolta was on Welcome Back, Cotter as Vinnie Barbarino. 
He also had a record contract with RCA. He had a single out, a 45. He was promoting it. He came to Chicago. He came on my show at night. And then the next day, uh, we went to the Woodfield Mall. Um, and there were allegedly, we were supposed to, I don't know, 4,000, 5,000 people, whatever it was. But, you know, if you've ever been to the Woodfield Mall, and I assume it's the same, there's a big atrium that goes all the way up. And there were 30,000 screaming teenage girls there. And... Um, to see you? Yeah. I didn't know. I was surprised because I didn't even know who John Travolta was. No. Yeah, see me, that's right. Anyway, uh, I had a tape recorder going once again through the entire incident, and it was big. Um, we entered with uh, Woodfield Security, and you could hear this crowd of teenagers go crazy, and the crowd starts pressing in on us, and you hear one of the security guards go, my gun, my gun, my gummies, gun is coming out of my holster. Uh, we get into the middle of this sea of humanity, and just listen to people scream and then got the hell out of there <laughs> and I uh, played this tape back on the air many many times and I will say that John is the kind of person that does not forget who you are uh, I accompanied my daughter Amy to the Emmy Awards about seven years ago a show she was on on um, Amazon called Transparent was nominated for some awards and John was also the executive producer Oh, thank you. I'll tell her that. And uh, John was the executive producer and also played a character on the uh, limited series about the OJ trials, fictional. And they were nominated. So um, during a break afterwards, we're at this what's called the Governor's Ball, which is a big-ass dinner. And everybody starts schmoozing. And I'm left alone at my table. So I decide, what the heck, I'm going to go walking around. And I find the FX table. And I see John there. And I happen to know one of the FX uh, executives, so I walked up and I just said to him, behind John's back, I believe he knows me. And the FX, the FX executive said to John's back, John, do you know a John Landecker? And his head shot up, he turned around, he grabbed my face, he kissed me on the lips. And you lucky dog. Hey, it wasn't the first time. And and his daughter, uh, Ella, and his wife, who has passed, has passed away in the past couple of years, were both there. And he proceeded to tell them exactly everything that I just told you about the Woodfield Mall. That's so, amazing. That's yeah. a great story. Woo! And this question's for Tommy. I mean, obviously, your career is extremely... Uh, illustrious and uh, during your time as a program director at WLS of course you ushered in the whole music radio format and and we just what uh, just kind of curious to see how that all started and uh, really your time as a program director at WLS and the music really radio large, part yeah music radio part yeah, yeah. Um, a WLS was owned by ABC and cousin Brucey worked at WABC in New York and the program director there was a uh, genius named Rick Sklar. And I got to know Rick when I worked in uh, New York. 
I worked at an FM station, and he had called me up and, and offered me uh, a job doing the all-night show there. And, and then the FM station said, no, you're not leaving. And they you know, said they'd get some sort of a legal issue, and so I backed off. But nonetheless, that's where I met him. And then when I was programming uh, WLS for a brief time, just about maybe eight, nine, ten months, something like that, um, I went to New York, and I sat in Rick's office, and we were talking about some things. And at that time, WLS was the rock of Chicago. And it sounded great. It had a great jingle to it and all that. But the music that we were playing back then was not really rock. I mean, there was a lot of pop music. There was all kinds of different music. And WABC in New York was music radio, WL, uh, WABC. And I loved that. And I told Rick, I said, this is really a great idea. And he said, it probably would work in Chicago. And I said, you know something? I think it will. So I called um, the morning guy, Charlie Van Dyke, who was on the air. And I told him, uh, starting right now, stop the rock of Chicago jingles and start saying music radio WLS. And by the time I got back to Chicago, the promotion department had already come up with the visual, the logo visual and all that. And then it was just a matter of time to get some jingles cut. But that's how it all happened. I want to know who were your favorite DJs and maybe pushed you into being in the business? Uh, I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. My biggest influences uh, were a guy named Lee Allen, but also somebody that you're probably familiar with, Joel Sebastian, who, uh, who worked in Detroit before he uh, came to Chicago eventually. And also, uh, I have to mention from WCFL, Ron Britton, who King was... King The King B was the King B as far as I was concerned. Uh, I grew up in Kansas, and uh, there was a guy there in Topeka on the radio named uh, Tony Curtis. And he said, hi, everybody, I'm Tony Curtis. Curtis, K for Curtis, Curtis for K-Top, because he worked at KTOP, K-Top. And I thought, this is the smoothest guy I had ever heard. I mean, I was only like 16, 17, 18 years old, and, and I thought, this, is, this guy is great. Found out later that he went to, he was going to law school there at Washburn University in uh, Topeka. And uh, he got a job in television. And he was on WIBW television. And then he joined the CBS television network. And he came to Chicago. And he was a giant hit with Walter Jacobson. His real name was Bill Curtis. But while he was in, while he was in law school, he was Tony Curtis filled with a K. K we made K for Curtis, Curtis for K-Top. Wow. And Bob? I, I uh, told this story to Rick Kempfer, uh, who put it in the Illinois Entertainer here in the month of August, but it's such an important story to me because it's the day my life changed, and I remember this day like it was yesterday. September of 1962, sixth grade, it had just started. A friend of mine in class said, and this is in Kalamazoo, Michigan, have you heard this station WLS in Chicago? They've got this rock jock on at night, Dick Biondi. He's wild. You should listen to him. 
Celebrating National Radio Day, that was the Museum of Broadcast Communications event. Rock Radio Revisited with radio legends John Records, Landecker, Tommy Edwards, Bob Stroud, Deanna Williams, and hosted by Wendy Snyder. For more information on that event and any upcoming events and exhibits, visit museum.tv. All right, top stories from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom are next here on 720 WGN. All right, and that is the new single by Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Moody Blues lead guitarist, vocalist, and composer Justin Hayward. It's called Living for Love. Justin is currently kicking off his voice of the Moody Blues UK tour, and he's taking out some time tonight to join us here on WGN Radio. Justin, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Dave. Just the lyrics behind this new song. I'm driving through the land we knew to find that sacred ground where moonlight on the innocence wildest dreams were found. We lay there till the break of day, lovers, me and you. I had to give my heart away. What else could I do? It was really reflecting on your teenage years. Life was simpler, your your whole life ahead of you. It was really what inspired the lyrics in the song, isn't it? I think so, yes. I mean, we, we all... I think every writer looks back to their teenage years so formative uh, musically as well. And uh, I think particularly my own generation um, growing up through the sort of late 50s and then 60s, um, it was a time of optimism and confidence and everybody was moving forward determined that there should never be another war like there had been. And I I think, um, you know, if you were in a a loving family like me and my brother and my sister, you know, that that we could just think about music. We were free to think about music. In fact, we could always get a job. That was (laughs) one of the most important things. So it was kind of, you always had something to fault. You know, you could always work in an office if the music thing didn't work out. But the music that we were listening to was so kind of formative in those years. And I know my my brother and I, we owned maybe three records, Mm -hmm. but we knew friends who had three records. And then you'd go to somebody's house and they so you you could make a whole night of listening to music just with your friends and their records, you know, and um that's what being young is about. But I, I, there's also references in this song to my life now. And um, yeah, and I, I'm just consider myself very lucky to be to be able to be true to my goals of making um, music live and, and recording. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky for that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of love, man, in music. So yeah, yeah, nice. there's no question. Yeah, no question. Yeah. I know you you were talking about, like, getting an office job while you make it or break it or whatever it might be, but many artists earlier in their career took other jobs until they made it. You never had a day job, so to speak. This has been your life, <laughs> right? No, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and God forbid that I should ever have to do it anything else but i was totally useless i might be able to work in a guitar shop but, okay um, that's fair all right that's fair yeah 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 because uh, yeah that's that's about it I, I did work in an office for about two months after i left school but i was only i was in groups in my hometown and then i was just answering advertisements in the paper for for things and um you know i got lucky with marty wilde and uh Again, with the Moody's, really. Yeah, you really do yeah. credit Marty for those those early years and and really getting you into the Moody Blues. I mean, you pretty much answered an ad. 
I did. I answered a, an advertisement in a paper called The Melody Maker, and it said, um, named singer seeks guitar player. <laughs> and and <laughs> yeah. mind you, I, I was answering about 20 ads a week. Yeah, okay. But this one, I, somebody actually replied, and I went <laughs> up to an audition in East London, and Marty Wilde opened the door. Now, Marty, in case anybody... Uh, around there doesn't know M Marty Wilde is Kim Wilde's father, but Marty was a, a big rock and roll hero, mm -hmm. and uh, you know in 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 those great days between '59 and kind of '66 uh, was was really at the t up there with Cliff and the Shadows, and um, and still is Marty is still touring on the road now, but he told wow. me to you know to to survive in the business you got to write your own songs and who's i i loved him then he was a mentor then and still is today to this day we're talking to justin hayward his new single is living for love he's currently on tour and we will spend some more time with this rock and roll hall of famer right after this on 720 wgn state player 720 wgn we're talking to rock and roll hall of famer moody blues lead guitarist vocalist composer justin hayward his new single is called Living for Love. You know, within a few years of, of the Moody Blues coming together and you joined the band in, in 66, Days of Future Past was the second album for the Moody Blues. Nights in White Satin was and still is the top single ever for the Moody Blues. You wrote and composed the song in your late teenage years inspired by a girlfriend who gave you satin bed sheets, and you used that as a metaphor for the song. You know, I was at the, I've been asked so many times to explain this song, and I'm not even sure myself. You know, it's <laughs> okay. a curious thing in your life to have to look back to about yeah. four minutes that <laughs> yeah. happened to you yeah. in, 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 a, in a little room in, in West London one night. Right. And uh, I've tried to explain it, but I'm not, I'm not even sure. Because no, in, in the 60s, nobody asked, asked you what a song was about. It was just like, oh, what, but that's what it is, you know. But, um, yeah, I was at the end of one big love affair and at the beginning of another. And when you're that age, that stuff is really important mm, to you. Right. And I just wrote the two verses. And, um, you know, I don't think anybody in the Moody Blues, I don't think we ever thought that anybody would hear this stuff. We were just on our way to doing something. And... Um, the opportunity to record Days of Future Past came along. It was an idea of the record company, and uh, it was a lucky day for us when they when they did approach us for this project. You know, so uh, yeah, it's pretty yeah. cool. I know, and you taught yourself how to play the guitar after you learned how to play the ukulele, right? Well, m maybe a lot of kids when they pester their parents for. Um, a guitar, <laughs> you parents will say, hey, here's, a, here's a five dollar ukulele first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and that's pretty easy. Ding, 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 ding is the tuning, but it really it's the same as the top four strings of a guitar, except the, the bottom string of a uke is much is is an octave higher. Mm -hmm. But if you can play the uke, you're well on the way to playing a chord of G.
We're talking to Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues. His new single is Living for Love. He's currently on tour. We'll spend some more time with this Rock and Roll Hall of Famer after the news next here on 720 WGN. Day player, 720 WGN. We're talking to Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Moody Blues lead guitarist, vocalist, composer, Justin Hayward. His new single is called Living for Love. When diving into music, I know you were inspired by, you know, Buddy Holly and Elvis, but... What made sense to me is you had mentioned Johnny Ray and recognized for his jazz and blues influenced music. You know, he was really his music was a precursor to what eventually became rock and roll. I think that's right. Yeah. Do you know, do you know, Dave, you're the only person to mention that. And um, yeah, because I I heard him could have only been about five years old Mm -hmm. and there was something that cry in his voice that break in his voice really kind of got me and i think the industry was quite cruel to him actually over the years but he really had something a kind of lonely he was in a sort of lonely place which really um struck home with me and uh do you think many people know who John no, Ray was? No, I don't. No, I don't. No. But when you say lonely place, blues, I mean, that does make great sense. Yeah, I, I, it was a kind of eerie kind of sound yeah. on, on his records and in his voice. And um, yeah, so, so many influences from that from that time. But, but you're right. We, we mentioned Buddy. And then, of course, I'd heard of Elvis, but... And I'd heard a couple of things on the radio, but it wasn't until I heard Buddy Holly that I was able to focus on what I wanted to to do. Really, it um, easy three chords. He didn't have to stand out the front. He was in a group. He was writing songs for a group, and he was singing with a group, and he was playing that playing the guitar. It all just oh, that's that's made it so right somehow. Yeah. Yeah, no question. Well, you know, it's funny. Like when you, and when you joined the Moody Blues, you know, you were you were kind of the band itself was kind of seeking a new direction. It was a time that all realized that they needed to reboot a bit. And someone who attended a concert of yours knocked on the dressing room door and told you how he felt <laughs> about the band. It was kind of a wake up call, wasn't it? Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. Yeah, because we were. Um, we we were at a um, doing a gig up up north. In fact, we were doing like they they were like cabaret. They're called working men's clubs, and our price had really dropped to about thirty dollars a night, just enough to be able to buy buy the gas to get us there. And uh, um, there was a knock on the door, and this guy came in, and um, we, we had no idea. And he said, he he said. He, I thought I'd tell you. He said, "You're the worst band I've ever seen in my life." He said, "And somebody ought to tell you." And yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I started to my bottom lips started to quiver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know Ray, Ray Thomas came over to me and put his arm around me, and and I could see a little tear in his eye. And then we were we were on the way home in our in our van. And nobody had said anything, um, but there's a little voice came from the back of our van, and it was Graham, our drummer. He was lying on the mellotron because that was the, <laughs> the it was a, that was a good place to be. Okay, all right, barely. Yeah. And and he said, "He's right, that bloke. You know, he's right. We're rubbish." Ah, <laughs> 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 really, that's what it literally took. the next day. Yeah, literally the next day, we 
just well we were lousy at rhythm and blues you know the, we were yeah by the time i joined we were pretty lousy at it but we were good at our own stuff so we just gave that a go and give it a couple of weeks and it started to work for us well you, you know? always mentioned to you there was just a series of what you called i love how you have you phrased this a, a bunch of wonderful accidents and and one of which was decca records who wanted to promote stereo to consumers and you were kind of wrapped up in that in a in a very cool way we were because decca london records in america um, Decca had their own consumer division, so they were keen on promoting their own radiograms and record players. And they really, because most of their catalog was classical music, they had the second largest classical catalog in the world, maybe still do, um, apart from Deutsche Grammophon, which had the largest. And um, their interest was in making long playing records and they wanted to demonstrate really that stereo could be as interesting for rock and roll as it was for classical music and they we actually had a debt to them i think left by some previous managers okay. that were only around for a few months but had mm -hmm. taken an advance and um, they approached us with this idea of um juxtapositioning our music with um, kind of classical music. And it was Peter Knight and one of the executives from Decca, which came, who came up with this idea of um, making a theme around our songs. And um, yeah, we were very lucky. We were doing a pretty much a stage show, which was kind of, Mike had written a song called Dawn is a Feeling, which I love. And and I had nights sometime before we recorded it for Decca, and everything just fell into place. And like you say, it was a it was a, a series of wonderful kind of accidents and the right people in Decca at that time, which which were all kind of elderly gentlemen, but they understood that there's the possibilities of, of what we were about to do with this record. Yeah. Well, I was going to say with Decca, too, you know, you, you didn't give them exactly what they wanted, but that's what an artist is supposed to do. Okay. I, I get the roundabout <laughs> about what you want, but this is our vision for it and, and present it to them. And it, it, they loved it eventually. They did. Yeah. yeah they, they did. They wanted a kind of rock version of Dvorak, whereas right. the orchestra would then come on after we'd finished playing and, or uh, just after our tracks and, our rock version of Dvorak and play the real Dvorak. And it was Peter Knight who came to see us at the 100 Club in Oxford Street, who heard our stuff and said, you know, you, you boys, and I don't think you're going to get rock versions of Dvorak together, <laughs> right. but your songs are really good. Yeah. He said, well, what about if we do it the other way around? And that's what we did. We did our songs and Peter Knight took those themes and, um, and weaved his kind of romantic magic, orchestral magic around that. Our, our stuff only took, you know, a day to a couple of days to record. Right. right. And um, but the orchestra on Days of Future Past was just one session, like three hour session. It's, it's unbelievable, isn't it? How you yeah. can do this? Crazy. I don't know whether you could do that. Now. No, you probably couldn't. No, you probably yeah. couldn't do it. You know, you've been touring all your life. And when you first started touring in America, at some point you toured with what was called at the time the CTA, it was the Chicago Transit Authority, which mm -hmm. became Chicago. People loved the music at that time, 
But it was all about the fashion as well, especially in the 70s. And people loved what you wore on stage. I mean, you were setting trends. Um, were we? Yeah, I, I know what you mean, because I, I think a, a lot of the American bands that we were mixing with and people in the business, that was one of their first. Hey, where did you get your gear from, man? You know, all this stuff. And um, but that was London. You know, we were, London it was a was a kind of fashion center. And, and I think we. Yeah, we, we were lucky to have each other to say that doesn't look very good, man. But that's all, that's good. You know, kind of. <laughs> that's funny. That's, that's funny. a great thing about being in a group, isn't it? We're talking to Justin Hayward. His new single is Living for Love. He's currently on tour. And we will spend some more time with this Rock and Roll Hall of Famer right after this on 720 WGN. Day player 720 WGN. We're talking to Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Moody Blues lead guitarist, vocalist, and composer Justin Hayward. His new single is Living for Love. Question the voice. I know you're out there somewhere, your wildest dreams. These laid the foundation for the success story of the Moody Blues over the years. And my high school and college years were in the 1980s. So your wildest dreams. I know you're out there somewhere. Both songs brought a new generation of fans to uh, to the band. It did for me. I think that's right. Yeah, a lot of people um, were keen to kind of write us off after the after the 70s we, we we were apart for about three years in the 70s and kind of came back together in 78 different um our record producer had left and his his life had changed and mike pinder had left the group sadly and i missed him very much but i knew that the rest of us really wanted to carry on and but i i think you know that this business is so transient, isn't yeah, it? And, very much so. And and uh, I think, um, particularly in those days, it was assumed that you could really only be successful when between the ages of about seventeen and twenty-four, and past that, you didn't have much hope. But I think we were lucky in that we had a couple of great producers. Pip Williams, and then we met Tony Visconti. I met Tony Visconti doing a, a project for the B. Well, he and I were doing a project for the BBC, and I knew that Tony was the guy to take us forward. and And his sound really is the sound of Wildest Dreams. And I know you're out there somewhere. What what a gift his production mm-hmm. style was. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. What a, what time in in your career? Uh, and especially with the Moody Blues, you know, whether you were performing in front of a live audience, whether you were recognized somewhere, like what was that moment that you said, wow, like we've really made something of this group. And it just kind of it was that moment in your life that said, wow, we've we've made it. Well, I think that happened to us in this in the 70s it happened to me then and we did we played madison square garden twice in the same day and and we did two shows one in the afternoon one in the evening and we, we weren't celebrities or personalities or anything so nobody knew what we looked like but but in the in between these two shows ray and i went out on the street and ray saw this guy a ticket tout. Uh, what would you call them? There, scalper. Scalper, scalper yeah. right? Yeah. And um, Ray went up to him and just bought all his tickets for a couple of hundred bucks or something. Wow. And then 
we just gave them away to people oh, and cool. they were like oh i love you man it's great wow. and wow. and uh, nobody knew who we were but we looked up i remember distinctly the two of us standing there on the pavement we looked up and there's a giant sign with our name on it we hadn't been out of the building to have a look but there was this giant sign and with our name on it and and we both said to e- we said to each other maybe we've made it you know, maybe <laughs> maybe. Uh, maybe we've made it yeah. yeah 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 and then we wanted to stay there yeah of course of so, course no question yeah. no question yeah. 1999 nights in white sand was inducted into the grammy hall of fame but it was 2018 the moody blues long overdue inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame what did that mean to you oh it was do you know, I was, I, I just, it was like a big sigh of relief, I think, for, for the Moody, people who love the Moody Blues music, it was kind of obvious, you know, and, and I so wanted them to, the Moody's fans to have what they wanted, and uh, and that was it, really, and yeah, it was such a, it was such a pleasure for us, and um, you know, for us, the cars, and Bon Jovi on that on that day, yep. and um, it was great for the Moody Blues fans. It was just brilliant, and and for us, of course, it was. I'm so glad that we all came together. We'd lost Ray in the months before that, yeah, yeah. who'd passed on, but Mike was there, and we were able to just kind of give each other a hug and that's great. Celebrate our, ourselves around that whole event and and what it meant to the Moody's fans and what it meant for our music. It was great. Well, the Moody Blues have sold 70 million albums worldwide, 18 platinum and gold LPs, and you can check out some very cool things at moodyblues.com. And to follow what Justin is up to, visit justinhayward.com. His new single is Living for Love. Justin, thank you for spending uh, such a a long period of time with us uh, tonight. I I know you're going to have fun uh, on this tour. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely well. And just to be with my crew and, um, and my, my musicians as well. You know, we're a quiet group of people, but that's kind of the way <laughs> it's about the songs. Right. And that's the way we like it. Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues. That wraps up my favorite conversations of the year here on the Dave Plyer Show. And I hope all of you are having a very happy and safe new year. Up next is the Sinatra Hours, expanded to three hours for your listening pleasure. And we'll kick that off after the top stories from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom, next on 720 WGN.